The following program features language some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to Hip Hop Cymru Wales, a podcast exploring the trails and untold tales of Welsh hip hop. My name is Luke Bailey and I'm a podcaster, best known for the Fly Fidelity podcast. And I'm talking to key players about the notable and nuanced evolution of Welsh hip hop history. Welcome to the program. This episode, we're closing season one with an extended bonus edition of the show, featuring a host of interviews, including DJs Money Shot, Parker, Alchemy, Comfort, Paul B, DJ Cuz, and a legendary Tony Prince. Stay tuned for a brand new season of Hip Hop Cymru Wales coming soon. Hello, this is DJ Money Shot. I grew up in South Yorkshire, a place called Retford, near Worksford and Doncaster. There wasn't much on. Everyone was into the indie Brit war explosion at the time and i was digging around into what i was trying to find out about hip-hop through going to andy's records or getting a train down to sheffield and then buying the source magazine and scouring the back pages of that for record shops perhaps depth's charge or mr bongo mailing off for tapes and trying to get involved with hip-hop that way there wasn't much of the radio that I could pick up, not being in London or anywhere. So you had Mark Tonderai on Radio 1 that mixed reggae, soul, rare groove with some hip-hop. So you get a bit of I don't know, E-40 or uh, Souls of Mischief or something. So you could pick up on that in the uh, very early 90s. That was super cool. And then would link with people at school if you saw them wearing a certain T-shirt or rocking a Walkman or skating with sounds coming out their ears that sounded like the Beastie Boys or something. So kind of formed a lot of identities with people through a shared love of hip-hop, sharing tapes and watching videos. You still have to go out and find it. Mm. You know, if you went to a record store, a big commercial one, I'm not talking like underground wax store, but you would just be under dance music. That was just a general term for all, generally black music and hip-hop and things like that. So first introductions, Public Enemy probably, because they did cross over into the enemy with their politicised with their polemical edge, you know, they could get covers on that. So you would see them a very visual band from their branding down to just their omnipresence on the scene. So that was a good gateway. Big fan of uh, Public Enemy. And eventually I would support them in Bristol, DJing. So full circle on that one. Nice. So you're experiencing all of this during what would have been the second wave of hip hop. It's coming off the heels of its infancy and it's starting to gain this momentum you're talking about across the UK. 
What was mm-hmm. it musically the work for you? And who would have been some of those artists outside of PE that single-handedly mm-hmm. kick off and, and, and fuel your obsession with rap music? Well, during the kind of golden age, which was 88 to, what, 93 or 4, I was around 92, 93 when I first started to absorb it and fully get into it religiously, like reading the Unside Hype, getting the fat tapes from Source magazine and going and finding these records, buying cassette singles. Uh, just trying to think at the time, a lot of the Oakland sound was really cool. You had the organised noise collective of producers and under that umbrella, rapper-wise, you had casual... Dale the Funky Home Sapien, and then later Souls of Mischief. And that was kind of like that West Coast, East Coast sound. So it was still sample heavy, but kind of funky. But what the far side would do, uh, as opposed to what would come with the G-Funk here at the time, which kind of turned me off the music. So I was digging more underground and getting into artists like that. And then as a DJ, get all the DMC tapes, the battle competitions, and then start looking at people like Rock Raider, and all the collectives of the beat junkies and invisible scratch pickles. And as hip hop got more and more commercialized, and people at school started listening to the pop versions of it, it turned me off. It sounded like they kind of, you had to dig for it. It was a shared underground collective knowledge. So I kind of enjoyed the scarcity of it. So then started to dig around into the turntable scene, start getting all those crazy videos and watching all those super turntables and through compilations like Return of the DJ on Bomb Records. Then you'd find out that some UK people were doing it as well. Like Format was on that, early compilations. That's with the Jeep Beat Collective, which was Dave the Rough, Mark One, I think, out of Manchester. So you realise there were still people keeping the digging, the breaks, the scratching alive. And that's what I was really getting into. So what do you think it was at that time about hip-hop that captivates you so much to the point of participation? Was there any catalyst or person specifically that got you to actually want to DJ? Well, just up the road from me, there was the son of a Taekwondo or Wing Chun master called Tristan Lowe. He was a big, cool dude who was a DJ at the time, and he would sell me his own mixtapes, and I'd go and see him DJ and workshop and stuff, and he used to write into Hip Hop Connection, and he was a great guest for educating me. You know, certain groups of people let young people come in and they don't show them away. They give them the tapes, they school them on, they correct them on how to pronounce things. I thought the UMCs was automatic MCs. Two different groups, he'd quietly point that out to me, so I'd never make that mistake in public. So I think someone like that really helped me, get me on my way. Uh, but people who were bang into super underground, really good hip-hop at the time, were few and far between. So yeah. you kind of uh, pull and share your knowledge, really. Can you remember your first set of turntables? Well, I bought some belt drives, which they shouldn't sell you at all. These things, you've been watching the DMCs. You've got people like <clears throat> Chad Jackson. You've got DJ David standing Standing on his decks almost and spinning around on his hands. These The things that they use were like tanks. And you get a pair of belt drive decks from some kind of DJ hardware store super Christmas package. And they were absolute bunk. So I'm trying to scratch the need, needles jumping everywhere. So I had some friends that were into dance music, more like uh, Happy Hardcore, some jungle at the time. So you could kind of casually mix records. And, and those type of DJs would get really finessed at blends. But I wanted to cut it up. So when I eventually moved away to university in Cardiff around 96, I think I bought one <clears throat> Vestax turntable with wooden sides, like one of those uh, 
wooden Chevy American cars, but that had a straight tone arm, tone arm on it. It was great for scratching, but I didn't have a mixer, so I had to use my friend's guitar amp I was living with and just flip his volume knob up and down while cutting. So it's one deck at a time for me, really, good decks. And then, uh, yeah, because it's not, not cheap when you're starting out. I mean, those things haven't gone down in price now. You know, after the World War, there'll be cockroaches and technics because those things last forever, and they'd never depreciate in value. So you're still looking at trying to get a grand's worth of kit together when you're, you know, a student living on beans and loans. <clears throat> or then after university, when I was just working, uh, you know, part-time jobs while DJing on the side. So trying to get the decks together, yeah, one one at a time. But So how are you navigating this practice as far as there only being, like you say, one turntable and your setup being completely polar opposite to everybody else back then? How are you navigating this practice in your bedroom? That's it. The bedroom is the lab. That's the place where you get it all done. Eventually, I got to two decks. But yeah, like I said, I'd be cutting it up on a volume over a mixtape, listening to it while scratching along, just trying to get your hand skills down. But then eventually when you get two decks and a mixer, and these things have got no bells and whistles. Like I've got a really good mixer now. It's got echoes and uh, filters nice. and all that. And it's all digital. Back then, all wax, and you would just sit and practice. Hours and hours and hours and hours. Just scratching, trying to do juggles, trying to do mixes, in the hope that you would get a get a gig somewhere. So a lot of the time, those early first gigs I ever got, the set would have been finessed, worked out weeks in advance. Now I just rock up and enjoy the freewheeling, freestyle nature of a spontaneous DJ set, often back to the back with my DJ partner, uh, Maccabee. But back then, I didn't want to mess up, because you mess up in public, especially when I started getting residences and playing, warming up for people. And these people are world champs, these people are world famous, and you're yeah. there in a club, it's hip-hop, and you're, I don't know, well, I was 20, maybe, trying to put a record on. You can barely scratch with one hand. You can't do much with the other one. And trying to gingerly navigate a set like that. But kind of deep end stuff. But um, just practicing one at a time, yeah. That's like, oh, Were you intimidated for those reasons back then? Being new to the scene? Oh, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> definitely. You just don't want to F up, do you? It's a very public place. And hip-hop, you know, you have to have the bravado. You can't get named shamed. You don't want to come out whack. Yeah. So it did mean a lot of times I'd, you know, girlfriend and go to bed and I'd wave off and then get in a cab, carrying your records, feeling physically sick, really. But that was it. You just have to get on with it. Well, you're talking about a time where there was no room for vulnerability. How long had you been DJing before you were getting what you would consider decent gigs? At which point does this, you know, trajectory start to change for you and open up? Yeah, well, at university in Cardiff around 96, I think I'd had a pair of decks by then and met some people who were also in a DJ collective called the Cake Mix Cartel. Uh, my friend Pete Griffin, a.k.a. Kovas, put that together and I became the in-house scratch DJ for them. And we started to play in a twat cafe, T-W-A-T, the warmest toast. I don't think it's there anymore, but that was a kind of real central hub uh, in Roth, I think. And um, before that, Patanga and Kipperbang had played there, which was a kind of a legendary big beat night. So you could still see a faded sticker on the window saying Mix Mags Club of the Year, and they would play there. But Love it. we were on the faded glory of that, and I, and I would be the hip-hop DJ, and then people would play Breaks House, drum and bass towards the end, some garage at the time as well. We had MCs, I think a, a young high-contrast MC for us once as well. But we would do that, and I would be the hip-hop DJ, so I'd start first. And then we do little gigs at the Twat Cafe. And then I think we would hire out Seven Last, which is a second room in the Chicago Union around 98, maybe. I'd say right. 98. 
So we do gigs there. We get like uh, camo netting up. We have five or six DJs, MCs, lights, and try and put like an old school rave on because the other people in the collective were a bit older than me and they they'd done the free party scene and stuff like that. I think on the back of that, then I would um, hand out tapes, make mixtapes. That become my stock in trade a few years later. But hand out mixtapes, trying to get gigs, and came to the attention of Dav Jones from the Hustler Showcase, which is really famous hip-hop night in Cardiff that was all over the Students' Union and the Welsh Club. And he had a shop in town selling clothes, so I would kind of like drop a tape in while working at Pizza Hut. And um, nice. And one day he came in and I would give him some free food and he'd say, come and play tonight. I didn't have a name at the time, so I just went by DJ Roy, but that was the first time I ever got my name on a flyer. And the that DJ would have been the was, first time? First time name on a flyer, but I didn't want to, I didn't have money shot back then because I didn't come up with a name. And I thought, you know, you've got to earn your name. It's like a Native American Indian. You can't just be born and yeah. call something. So I had to kind of grow into that. So there is posters with just as DJ Roy, which is the most uninspired, but I was like, it's a placeholder. So around that time, I think I might have had some other gigs in the Toucan Club in Cardiff, which jumped many a location, played in them all. Um, I think Little Miss from Randall Records may have scored my first gig for me there. God bless her. Or Dave the Rave Groove Slave, who was also a DJ around the time. Um, actually, going back further than that, I remember going to Poona Nars on St. Mary Street, probably in 90, late 96, before I was even DJing. There was a dude there to play on a Tuesday to no one, but he played rare groove records. And I just sit there kind of on my own or with another person just with a beer in my hand, staring at him, joining the dots between like the Jackson sisters' miracles and cross the tracks and stuff like that. So yeah, he was, whoever that mysterious guy was, was an inspiration. But yeah, Interesting. then back to uh, the Toucan, played there. Yeah, I played the Hustler Showcase. I remember seeing those nights before I joined, I would go down to the Students' Union, they had B-boys, graffiti murals, like four decks scratching. This was, you know, when you've just seen this stuff on tapes, or you've gone down the road to buy a magazine. Now you're seeing hip hop in it, it manifest in the flesh. So that was wicked. And that was the night I eventually became a resident at. But prior to my residency, along with DJ Parker, who was a legendary DJ from Bristol and Cardiff, uh, this guy called P6 Super, he was an amazing DJ. He uh, he works and he manages a huge chain of bookers, cash and carries now. So, But he wanted to give it up. He wanted to give it up, so we kind of like jumped in. Uh, he kept it warm and, and left, and we we moved in. But he was a very inspiring DJ, super cool. But he had a, a wicked attitude about him. He was super nice, but he looked kind of uh, dark and moody. And his scratching was dope, and his style was dope. He'd always pitch up every record by about plus six, so it just sounded crazy hype. So he could mix in, I don't know. Um, Juice know the ledge maybe with something a lot faster from the dance world like um what's that song by Josh Wing High State of Consciousness stuff like that so that stuff like that was super cool and then when I eventually got a chance to be the resident there we would have nothing but stars coming through every week playing with everyone from world famous DJs to big cruising collectives in UK and US it's kind of a great time for hip hop. There was a lot going on in the UK with like low life and stuff like that. And everyone was touring yeah. from across the sea. So one of the main DJs, it was a big inspiration, was from Bristol, actually. He was Portshead's tour DJ, DJ Andy Smith. He came over a fair few times to play at the Students' Union. And I was always blown away by his approach to mixing and kind of gave me the DNA and confidence to play 
random but funky and well dug up stuff in sets alongside hip hop. So if you listen to any of his document mix CDs, one of which I would have bought in 96 when it dropped in Catapult Records, he's playing Tom Jones with a huge breakbeat in it. And when you saw him live, he'd play uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Little Miss Lover, I think, which has got a big break in it from a Tribal Quest sample, into like EPMD. It's just this fearless way of mixing mixing up the styles. So that became my, that became a template of how I could play. So I started to get known for playing and cutting up funky records and oddball selections. And, and pushing put, limits. Yeah, pushing limits. That was it. Not just going up, here's the 10 banking bankable tunes. Because also when you're a warm-up DJ, it's kind of like an unwritten rule not to play, you know, if Sound of the Police has just come out of that month, you're probably not going right. to play it. You know, you're going to go out and play some special ed. Come on, move it or something from his uh, second album, I think, first one. Yeah. So that was my style of hip-hop back then. I would play fast, like 106, 115 BPM, block party fun hip-hop breaks. And, and hip-hop and rap stuff and uh, one more at this Hustler and then Parker would play all the brand new sounds of the UK that were out at the time Dope. so we kind of like representing good, two good sides Let's talk about your run holding down the various residencies as mm-hmm. DJ Money Shot, what was it like navigating until that point a relatively new experience in terms of reading a Let's face it, sizable crowd. And how did you transition from Cake Mix Cartel to Money mm. Shop? Yeah, well, I must have had a passing interest in adult literature to come up with a name. And then um, just handing out tapes and getting more recognition. And I was finding in Cake Mix, no disrespect to those guys, but I was the one turning up early because I had to play early and playing. And then when it, they would eventually just stop coming and I was playing in the Twat Cafe out there. And I just had a drive and a push to keep doing it. So when that dried up, head towards town and start giving out tapes and see what's going on. So besides the Hustler Showcase and playing at the Toucan and places like that, there was a big explosion when Al Power and his collective started to work Maloco on Mill Lane and the legendary Enthusiasm Nights. And that became like a real melting pot and a meeting pot of up-and-coming stars, DJs, and big acts every Thursday. Um we started with hip hop and then we turned to drum and bass nights. It was a really wicked dynamic. So you'd have people like the next men on four decks. You'd have the jungle drummer from hospital records. Residents were like me, high contrast, um, TJ Looker, I think, Spud, a few other characters, Dave Shaw, who eventually go on to run concrete junglist clothing label, come down and do pictures. That's right. Uh, yeah, so that was a great spot. And then those guys took on a kind of bar empire and opened Buffalo Bar, 10 feet tall, places like that, and I would become a resident there. So not only playing Hustler, Toucan, Buffalo, uh, 10 feet tall, I think that was across the road, Maloco, and then I think I was DJing a clothes shop in the daytime. Uh, it was a skate shop that was no longer with us. So you could be doing five, six nights a week, maybe two on a Friday, Saturday, just getting out, getting about, and putting your name out there, really. It was like just a little world you could get busy in. And um, this was the vinyl era, so just carting around bags of records. What is several turning points around the late 90s, around this timeline we're talking about? Most notably, you're hooking up with some key players locally in the hip-hop scene, including SFDB. You're holding down scratch duties for many of the live shows which were to follow. How does that mm-hmm. come about? Well, I ended up 
I don't know if I was a practicing journalist qualified by that point, but I ended up getting a gig writing for Kruger magazine, which was a great little street mag in the style of crack or vice covering music, art, uh, jibber jabber. And I would be their go-to hip hop guy. And I was commissioned with going to interview uh, Leon West, AKA second son who ran SFDB, same family, different ball bag. He was the brainchild behind Flea Pit alongside Junior Disprol. And around the time of his own solo work, Second Son and his orchestra featuring the likes of Jest, uh, Chester P and that from Task Force, some local talent as well. Yep. Um, I went around to interview them, we hit off. And then I, me and him were thick as thieves, just hanging out all the time as he was working, putting the finishing touches to the album and a few other projects. And as a hungry buck who wants to work, I was just, we did a few mixtapes together and did some cuts on records he did with, I don't know, Black Tricks, Ralph Ripshit, um, Hummerack de Gritty. Um, yeah, so I would do cuts like that. It was me, Parker did a few, I think. We'd taken over from a guy called Uppercut and uh, another guy called Killer Tomato came in who eventually became... Goldie looking chains tour DJ. because uh, that we were all kind of tight with those. Reese mainly from Goldie Looking Chains. So Second Son produced or co-produced their hit single, Rappers Don't Kill People. Guns Don't Kill People, rappers do. Right. Yeah. So he'd be around quite a bit. And I did some cuts on a secret tune of theirs that was like if you put a CD on and press backwards on the Gold Looking Chain Greatest Hits first album. I think I did some cuts on a tune on there called Holiday. Yeah, so Killer Tomato went off and did that. I ended up working with Leon, just hanging out. And he was a huge brakes collector, seven-inch 45s, all the real rares, all the grails, Impeach the President and stuff like that. 500 quid records, you know, and I'd be scratching the shit out of him and he'd be complaining about the Cuba <laughs> and just smashing the price tag of him down. Every time we did a cut, he'd be like, that's 50 quid knocked off it. <laughs> yeah, but we would DJ like Kruger magazine launch parties and work together. Very uh, dope. Yeah. So off the back of that, he was running his little empire with Black Tricks would come in, PLO, Ralph, uh, mm. Ralph Ripshit, um, and Hummer at Degree was the big hopeful. So I did some cuts on his um, They Ain't Ready, I think it was the album. Um, yeah, not Rags, Rags to Rags, which is a follow-up. But yeah, I would do cuts for them, and um, they had some live bits supporting, doing scratch duties for maybe Skunkadelic, um, who's now in a group called Afro Cluster out of um, Cardiff and... In my group, the allergies, we got them on a tune, got him on a tune last year or the year before, actually. So still kind of working together. Nice. And talking to Black Tricks, he had a five Euro Shades Redux song that came out one or two years ago. And he reached out for me to do a remix. So I blessed him with some dark, moody beats for that. So we kind of all kept in touch in a way. You know, I don't get back to Cardiff as much, but keep an eye out for what's going on over there. Yeah. Well, going back to Black Tricks, there is the contribution, of course, you did for Strapado Styles EP, mm. which comes out on Optimus Prime Style Up Records. Mm, that's what are your right. memories of Optimus Prime during that time? Yes. Talking about DJs who were uh, at the forefront and pushing their style. You know, you had Jaffa, the old school guard with the classic skill set, P6 Super with the crowd rocking demeanor, and then Optimus Prime, who were in a league of their own 
in terms of in terms of crew turntablists, each one deadlier than the next. Uh, Joel and one who passed away recently, Stagger. Yeah, that's right. Rest in peace. Yeah, those guys were dope. Honestly, um, you'd follow them around wherever they were playing. They'd rock up with four decks in cafes and bars and just smash it out. And um, they were very well known for their aggressive sticker campaign. Uh, it was either for Dial-Up or Octopus Prime itself, or they had a stencil, but something that caught the eye of local communities. And they were in the papers, I think, and people were trying to track them down and get into the vandalism. But yeah, Dial-Up Records, I think I've got them all upstairs somewhere. They had like a logo with a satellite on it. Yeah, yeah. So that was... Strapado stars, maybe Friday night fight off that. Don't remember much about it, but if someone reached out and asked me to do cuts, it was a no-brainer, really. Same with Ralph Ripshit of Associated Minds on his best name, 12-inch, which I did some cuts on a track of his called Modern Day Milligan. How was that experience, working with Associated Minds, working with Ralph Rip? Well, it was just um, you meet up, hang out, then do it over email, really. But I think the mayor came over... To my old house and he was doing some he was i think he was running uh, the label at the time super cool dude shout out to him shout out to captain shout out to rough style as well big collective that was a whole separate world to the hustler showcase not sure how well well the two got on but there was room for competition one represented a student crowd rocking there was like underground welsh rap scene stuff but yeah it seemed cool with me so i was happy with it but yeah, Mayor came round the house to take a few pictures because he wanted to, on the front of Ralph Ripshit's best name, 12, I think. It's all made up of tiny pictures of all the moves and shakers of the Cardiff hip-hop scene at the time. I'm actually so, pictured on it as well. Yeah. <laughs> so that was it. It's me. I've got my hat. I've got my my cat, Bueller, at the time. And I think I've got him up my shirt and head sticking out my T-shirt. That's yeah. right. It's probably true. Probably good times. Time. Yeah, so all those guys are wicked. And then it was just good to see people taking that next step because I'd turn up and rock clubs, put out little mixtapes, go online, but these people were getting record labels together and building mini empires. So salute the people mm. that put their hand in the pocket to get the stuff out there because I'm not sure how much there was in terms of decent support or press because no one gives a fuck about where you're from until you make it big somewhere else, but you've got yeah. to support the talent that comes out. So... I think shouts to Beth and Elvin and uh, Hugh Stevens on BBC Radio Wales at the time that gave us all a lot of showcases. I remember going down and doing a full showcase with Homerak and doing studio stuff with Leon and DLC, I think, and and doing mixtapes for them and getting praise. And it was always great to hear your stuff on the radio. So shouts to them. And then many years later, uh, Adam Walton on BBC Wales. Um, and of course, Ed Richmond, who was the producer behind the scenes, that, that got me in on that. So, salute. You mentioned the mixtapes. These mm. moments we're talking about—they reflected so much of an important time for you between doing live shows and pivoting as a DJ, releasing these incredibly dense and dazzling mixtapes. Can you talk about your run doing these mixtapes and any standout favorites? Yeah, man. Well, I started by. Just putting them out, doing what I could do in the style of the document, Andy Smith. So it'd be stuff you wouldn't expect mixed with acapellas with a hip hop flair. And then I would give the tapes to Hip Hop Connection magazine and DJ Yoda's world famous ones and twos mixtape reviews page would get them in there. And he, and he would give me a write up every 
issue to the point where he said, we're going to have to rename this the DJ Money Shot page. And people all over the world since have read that. I was talking to Scratch Bastard out of uh, Canada, and he was like, yeah, we'd see your name in Hip Hop Connection with the mixtapes. I was like, I see yours too. So I'd get dap and respect across the world for getting my, my mixes featured in that. And that gave me the confidence to keep pushing it on. And at that point, the best place for the kind of music I liked to hear was uh, Ninja Tune Solid Steel Radio, which is a famous station that came out of the Pirate Kiss era. Uh, put together by Colcott, that then went on to university radio, international radio, internet radio, and went all over the world. And I kept supplying mixes to them. Uh, and my one called Mother's Ruin, which was all kind of pop and rock breaks and people you wouldn't expect in a dope sampling. Because my thing was hip hop, you can find a ZZ Top record and find a killer break in it from the past. So I was trying to find that as a kind of theme. And this mix, maybe around 2003, um, one mixtape of the year for them. So that was huge props. I remember being on holiday in Greece, finding a dial-up internet cafe and just checking my emails and then going, ah! So they were loving that, so which gave me the confidence to keep pitching their mixes. And then when it came time for them to go to a bigger station and get a bigger reach, they brought on more residents so from across the uk you had boom up bed in scotland you had dj chiba from bristol england and then uh, dj manager myself representing wales so we were kind of part of this uh <laughs> uk wide dj collective on ninja tunes cold cut solicitor radio alongside dk and strictly kev and then i started to hang out with chiba who would do the mixtapes from over there and we combined to do mixtapes together and we got DJ Food in, world famous DJ. And together we followed on an idea I had where we could DJ all the Beastie Boys samples and mix them together. So I did one celebrating the Check the Head album. Then we had the idea to do Paul's Boutique. So we started to work on this mix for three years. And it was around the time the MCA just passed away. So we finished it off and there was an outpouring of grief. And we put, the, put it out, respect to him, and it blew up. And that got us three going around the world DJing this mixtape, deconstructing it on six turntables with, with video. And, uh, yeah, and that got one of the mixtapes to listen to before you die. Well, best internet mixtapes of all time by the LA Times and got to play Australia and Canada and everything like that. So that was when I first said, start to get a taste of what you could do if you did good mixtapes and put your trade out there. So then trying to capitalize on any kind of interest people would have in me, I start to make tunes at that point. Take me into the process of putting together that Beastie Boys tape specifically. Yeah. Well, you have to track down all the songs. I mean, you had LimeWire and things at the time, but then some stuff on Wax maybe. And then you're trawling blogs, blog posts, looking at magazines, trying to find out what the list of samples was. Um, thebreaks.com was a very helpful resource for breaking down and snitching down mm. all the sample sources. So once you think you've accumulated the hundreds that go into it, then you've got to try and make sense of it. And I think at that time, Serato was out and about, and maybe I had Cool Edit, which was like a cracked or free piece of software on the PC that would crash and break when you just put your headphones on, sat in your pants, bowl of cereal going stale, and you've just done six or seven hours without moving, trying to make this mixtape work, then it all crashes. So trials and tribulations of that, but yeah. Hundreds of man hours. Mine personally for the check the head one, a couple of months probably. And then for the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique one, which was a, a three-man job. Yeah. Probably three years all in. So it's a kind of scrutiny, patience, attention, 
block of time and commitment that it's impossible to have anymore. When all I had was hunger and free time and a part-time job, it, it, you could put all your energy into that because you wanted to make a mark. You wanted to shout out to the world and you to get notes. It's like doing the Grey album if you're Danger Mouse. You're just feverishly doing it because you have to do it. That's a good example. Before someone else steals the idea. So that was that, yeah. You're talking about a major growing period for you, aren't you? These were major growing days for you coming up. That's right, yeah. Well, off the back of the tape, start getting some DAP, and off the back of being on Solid Steel, start getting some international appeal, and that meant going around all Europe DJing. Um, Me and Parker, my Hustler Showcase resident, brother in tone arms, would go out, do four deck shows in places that had never seen people DJ four decks. We were just cutting it up all over Europe. Listen to what I'm stating Stop hating, gritty's a legend in the making Permanently creating blatant fire Foot on the ladder so intent on climbing higher Definitely got the ability Star personality, every word spoken with clarity Speak savagely, my words kill In fact my skill will make time stand still Gritty's militant, flex brilliant 90 years from now my music will still be relevant My environment gave me the hunger To take over, tear it down like a bulldozer The industry's Raving about me, saying he could be best MC in the country. Practice constantly since birth. Bring a earth, great kill shows half of a verse. Listen, you are now listening. I'm witnessing a legend in the making. Legend in the making, it's official. Golden tongue chosen one, pretty special. Listen, you are now listening. I'm witnessing a legend in the making. Legend in the making, believe me, it's my destiny. So remember, that was great fun. He went on to be a uh, absolutely wicked producer in his own right. And off the back of the mixtapes, could only go so far, so I had to start making tunes. That was the next evolution. But I think I'd learn all the cut and paste sampling skills I'd need to make these type of tunes I was going to make from the time and effort I'd been putting into these mixtapes for all these years. Well, let's talk about yourself producing and let's talk about what's happening today with, of course, the allergies. How does the allergies come about? That's right. Yeah, I formed the group The Allergies with Rackaby, um, who was from Guildford, who was a drum and bass DJ. And we were both residents on the national and international touring circuit, mainly a collective who had their own tent called Chai Wallace, who we're still with now. And we would play on different nights and they'd rock for Thursday, him and his mate Barlow. And me and Chiba and people like that would rock and Parker would rock Fridays and Saturdays, closing the tent up. And we just shared more and more cab rides, uh, sorry, more and more car rides to these festivals. Uh, and then realised we had a shared knowledge of kind of like wanting to, of hip hop and wanting to put tunes out. So I had a few ideas that I'd been sat on, not any confidence to put them out, played them to him. And he was like, these are dope. So we ended up working on them. And that became an EP. And we went, and on the back of that, two or three EPs later, around 2016, we signed with. Jalapeno Records, who we're still with now, about to drop a fifth album, fifth or sixth album with them, really. Um, yeah, making the kind of music that I would play when I was coming up in Cardiff, the kind of records, if you'd hand it to me, I would have dropped it that night. Kind of like good party funk and hip-hop with emphasis on moving butts, skills, digging, and a nice big funky booming polish to it. So it kind of all comes full circle. 
when you look at your contributions so far, what strikes you the most? Well, probably just the long tenure playing for the Hustler Showcase, which is a joy and a privilege to get on. And he saw something in my DJ skill and approach. Often play a back room, playing like Disney records with hip hop breaks under him, doing something wacky and original, and then getting more and more respect there and going further and further up the bill until just constantly supporting all these great people over the years. And we'd play in um, Clubby for Back. And then the Hustler Nights became precincts. That was a free three floor thing with his drum and bass night, silent running up top, uh, sumo his breaks night, and then uh, Hustler Showcase doing the hip hop. And that was a, a collective and a promotional team that saw great gigs, especially the New Year's Eve ones, um, probably 2003 or four, in the University Great Hall under the name of Bass Invaders. And that's when big name acts from LA would come over, like Ugly Duckling. And I would support them at these big nights, 2,000 people, great fun. And um, they rock so hard with us that they eventually released a B side to Iron the Gold Chain 12 inch, which is called Cardiff, which was a massive uh, big up to the love they had playing at the Hustler Showcase nights in Cardiff. So uh, they were always on the radar, Ugly Duckling. And then. Um, a few years later, I would approach Andy Cooper, their lead rapper, with some beats I've been working on with the allergies. And he liked them and jumped on them to the point now, five, six albums down the line, he's our live rapper at our shows and we work with him on all our music. So, again, being in Cardiff made that connection and link, which is now fruitful in my um, in this chapter of my life in Bristol, DJing and making music as the allergies. I want to thank you for taking the time to do this, man. It's been an absolute history lesson. No way. All good, man. And i got a box of stuff in. I haven't had a chance to dig through. It's uh, it's like the front cover to my Reach Around mixtape, which I put out in Cardiff. Um, oh, the Bass Invaders 2. Wow. Fold Out Flyer. When... Oh, wow. And that's Cuba, Andy C, Crafty Cuts. And uh, money shot on the back. Wow, look yeah. at that. With Focus and Chico Fresco and West One. West One is Josh, who runs the Bristol O2 Academy now. But yeah, I got just a bag of stuff here. Cardiff Arts. Yeah. Hey yo, I bring the woe, hitting the bars, deliver bitter blows, killer flows, that be the level I never did below. UFOs, my alien shout, the gas is sneaking out, the zoom that be light years ahead, they thought we burning out, in the zone again, the road tricks are Indian, snakes are hypnotized by the tongues that I'm spitting in, that's the stone effect you get tripping from listening, it's the sun god and the sunlight you're squinting in, when I put it down, it's cause I came to set the bar, the perfect blend of I way way and Eric Cantona, flipping on his burgers, for all you four noodles, drop some Medibles, nothing usual in my doodles It's the GOAT, cramming like Tony Baker In the suitcases where they found the hater Drink my Henny, smoke my trees, beg my paper My physical is in the room, but not my vapor I lay the blades in the five-year-old shades I lay the blades in the five-year-old shades I lay the blades in the five-year-old shades I wanna cut, keep it nice with the face. Hi, uh, I'm Pete Hall, um, formerly DJ Parker also Neuropole and part of the Beekeepers. I was one 
of the residents at the uh, Cardiff Hip Hop Night Hustler Showcase alongside DJ Money Shot. Um, I was thinking about it before. Um, I, I obviously thinking about it yesterday about some of the memories and actually one of my first memories of like hip hop in Cardiff was money shot. Cause I remember walking past, there was a cafe called, we used to call it the twat cafe, but it's, uh, st which stood for like the war warmest toast cafe. And I just remember randomly walking past looking through the door and seeing money shot mixing hip hop beats with nursery rhymes. And just thinking, like, who is this guy? I was obviously DJing in my bedroom at that time. And I was like, bloody hell, he's good. I need to, like, up my game. And th and then, like, maybe six months later, I um, put in a mixtape. Because Hustler had, a like, uh, a shop as well. Like, I think it was Hustler HQ, where they sold, like, I remember them selling like various like hip hop magazines and mixtapes and clothes and all that. And I dropped a mixtape into them and in the hope that I'd get a gig and then ended up being a resident alongside Money Shop for a fair few years, actually. Um, and we ended up taking it over to Bristol as well and doing it over there. But initially, if I'm honest, it was definitely for, for my part. I don't know about Money Shop, but from my side, I was definitely, the ego was there and I wanted, even though we were residents, I still wanted to beat him. It was like the hip hop mentality of, of battling was always there in my mind. And I was always practicing scratching and I'd work on my sets beforehand. And my main aim was to blow him away. I wanted to be the better resident basically. Um, and, but he was like, we were a good match for each other. We were both like, he was more, I'd say he's like golden era. Like he knew, he he like knew his funk and knew his soul, but also knew his golden era hip hop. And like, he's an encyclopedia of that sort of stuff. Like you could name any tune and he knows the like lyrics. Um, so he was more that side. And I was definitely obsessed with turntablism and inspired by, scratch perverts mainly and dj woody early on bristol dj called dj maca and various other people like that and i wanted to i wanted to go down the turntablism vibe but also in terms of the music i played out i was more like interested in uk hip-hop so together we were brilliant because he brought the old school and i brought the kind of uk the more underground uk hip-hop and together that was a really quality sound that we we had and eventually i mean we both the aim of the, being a resident you want to be the guy that plays just before the main act because you know you're going to have the crowd are going to be heating up but also you want to show your skills to the main act whoever that might be and we had we had everyone coming through cardiff at that time i i don't think i was thinking about earlier that like i'm from bristol originally and there wasn't they didn't have a comparable night. It was a really special night. And we had like Grandmaster Flash, Africa Bombata, Scratch Perverts, Rodney P and Skits, um, Roots Maneuver, all the people that any anyone you can name, I reckon we had them. And it was, so we wanted to be, we really wanted to be playing before them. So in the end, 
I guess I put my ego to one side. Maybe Money Shot put his ego to one side, and we we said, why don't we do four decks? Because then we can just we can we both get what we want rather than me playing first and him playing after or vice versa. So we did four decks, and that was just from that like you know our you know we're still friends now. I think I was nineteen. I'm forty two now, and it was a real good blossoming of a friendship, and also that competitive side was always still there and we pushed each other in terms of our skills. And I really, yeah, I thank that, thank him for that time. Definitely. Cause we, he pushed me. I always wanted to get better. He, I learned a lot off of him in terms of his knowledge around hip hop. And it was just, it was, I mean, I can look back at it now and think it was actually a really beautiful time. Cause it was probably my, I'd done a bit of DJing in clubs before, but that was my real first, like getting into it and uh, having a regular residency. And we pushed each other and took it up to a level where we were doing mixtapes. And eventually from doing the Hustler shows together and putting out mixtapes sort of further afield, like on Ninja Tunes is Solid Steel and shit like that, we ended up doing gigs in Europe and getting booked all over UK. And I remember Andy Smith saw us play together and he booked us for his document night in London in cargo. And that for me and for a money shot as well, I'm sure was like a real pivotal time in our career because Andy Smith's document album was like massive at that time. And he was the mixtape DJ and we had so much respect for him that for him to ask us to play at his night was huge. And we haven't released music or anything. That was purely on our DJ skills. So I'm really proud of that. And, and all the gigs that me and money shot did together, actually, it was, it was an amazing time. Um, and I mean, thinking going further on about hustler, what I was thinking about that really stood out was, how I look at it now and think we were really spoiled, man, because this was like late nineties, early two thousands. Um, and like I said, it's my first real proper introduction to DJing in a club. And it was like all the killer hip hop artists that came, but also the crowd were dope. Like every single hustler show we did, we had break dancers. It's like, I just took that for granted. That's what happens. You play a hip hop show and you get break dancers when you start playing further afield, it's like, that's not a thing. Like we had a regular crew. I think the main guy was called Quam and he was unbelievable. And it was like, you know, like two English kids DJing in Wales, but feeling like we were DJing in like the Bronx or something. <laughs> like when you're a teenager and like, that's what you're looking at. You know, we were looking at like, videos of cash money or whoever and then it's like oh my god we're playing in we're playing in a club and there's break dancers and we're playing like the music that we love and it feels like it felt very like the stereotype of what hip-hop was in our head so i i look back at it now like i've done some wicked shows in my life definitely like i've ended up touring the world and playing australia canada all over europe and all of that shit when I was, I then became a headliner. But no, but when I think about it now, I'm like nothing compares to the innocence and the naivety of 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 playing, like hustler showcase with money shot, because that was 
probably as pure as it got because I wasn't thinking about my name or like, oh, I've got to play the music that I produce or I've, I, you know, I'm a headline act now. I've got to play all the bangers or, you know, whatever it is you're thinking about your career later down the line. When, when your kids, all you want to do is just be the best you can be. And you, you, you're like, that naivety of just it's just about the music one about money we didn't get paid very much it was just about love of the music love of the art form and how exciting it was like i'm watching dmc videos to try and learn how to crab scratch and then the following week tony vegas is there doing the very same thing live and i'm djing before him it's like that's an honor so in terms of when I think about where I am now, it's whole basis. It, I'm not over-exaggerating the whole basis of what, where my whole career in music is Hustler Showcase, is the club I for back. Sorry if I haven't pronounced that properly. The Welsh club. That was, that was the foundation for everything I did. Because, you know, like being a hip-hop DJ isn't an easy thing. You've got... Yeah, we had great party crowd. Yeah, we had breakers. But we also had loads of dudes standing on the side with their arms crossed, checking out what you're doing. And I always feel like when I think about DJing, hip-hop DJing is the purest form of DJing. It's the hardest version of DJing. And to me, it's the only one that I would class as real DJing. Um, and I'm ever thankful for that's where I started my dj career because i started it in the hardest way you could with vinyl scratching mixing and doing it that way it wasn't it's not the same when you mix drum and bass which i later did or house music or whatever it's not the same it's not the same discipline there's like so much more to it and it is an art form um and yeah i guess in short what i'm trying to say is hustler was my um apprenticeship and it was a really good apprenticeship. There was other nights that I I played for. Uh, there was a night at, there was a place called the Toucan Club, which was at the time was on the same road as the Welsh Club, as uh, opposite, a few doors down. And there was a night called Magnetic, and that was like an eclectic night. But they, so you could have hip hop, scratch DJ, but then like they'd be doing their thing and then, an hour later, there'd be a full samba band walking through the club playing drums and stuff. But I, my memories of my main memories of that those nights were, I remember there being, I don't know, six or seven or eight decks set up, and almost like it wasn't really a battle. It was more 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 of a showcase, and people were invited to play and uh, and show their cuts. And I remember you know there would be a beat playing and then i do a cart and then there'd be other people but the people that i always remember being the dopest was optimus prime like stagger rest in peace and monkey were incredible they were like on a level that they were like you know nationally national level good like i was good in cardiff that's no disrespect for cardiff but i I entered DMC and I didn't do very well, put it that way. They could have entered DMC and won. Like, that's how good they were. They were like, they were like Qbert vibes, you know? Like, I was I was inspired by Scratch Perverts and, and, and Plus One specifically because he was a bit, I don't know, he had, it, 
felt a bit more party than you know, like Cubert's a bit like an alien in his and and D Styles and people like that. Yeah, there's that alien level, and that's what Stagger and Monkey had. They were like great, and I was like, oh shit, like I'm definitely not the best in the room here, and it was good for my ego actually that. But also there was another DJ called DJ Cuz, mm. and he he was br- like I was so inspired by him. He was so good. Like his juggling was brilliant. Like another guy, that's the thing. There's there's probably there's stories like this in every city. Like there's these guys that they never they never went in for DMC or you know, touring around or whatever. But they were like they were easily as good as anyone that was doing that. Like I put Cuz up Cuz up there, like being he could have easily done DMC and done really well. He was he was brilliant. Um, and I remember battling him and later when I was better and he still beat me. Um, (laughs) and I was trying to do, and I was doing gimmicks. Like I was doing like, I was a bit like, you know, that, I don't know if you know, like Scully, you know, he was, you know, like he was, he was obviously great, but he was a bit gimmicky. Like I'd always like, he beat Woody, I think in, in, in a DMC. And I just thought Woody is technically so much more superior but Scully's got the party vibe. And I think that was my approach because I had a lack of, like, I felt like I lacked a bit of technical skill. And I remember battling him in the Toucan Club, uh, DJ Kurz, and my thing was, like, I was juggling. I was I was doing, like, beat chasing, and I was doing it with one hand, and then I picked up a pint and I drank it at the same time. And it's like... It looked visually, it looked impressive, and obviously everyone cheers because it's like, well, he's drinking a pint. But then Cud gets on, and he's doing like pitch. He's he's like he's like juggling and moving the pitch at the same time, and it's like, yeah, you should win. Like you're amazing. So he was another really big inspiration. But um, there was, I I just think you know when you're young and you're doing something, you're. I mean, unless you're like an enlightened young person, which I wasn't, I wasn't aware or present in that moment of how special it was. Right. And and now I look back and go, we, me and Money Shot were in Cardiff at a time that was, hasn't been, hasn't been recreated since. And it wasn't like it, it, it felt like that late nineties into like early two thousands was really special time. Because don't forget, like we we had Hustler Showcase, which then turned into Precinct, which is, was a free floor event where you had drum and bass in the bottom. And who was play, Who was the resident and playing drum and bass at the bottom that, at that time? That was High Contrast, who's now a fucking massive pop star, essentially. Uh, you, that's who you were rubbing shoulders with. And like I said, the culture in terms of having breakers there and... And loads of people DJ and loads of people were MC and it felt like a community. And that's one thing I would say, being a Bristolian, and that's so I feel like I can say this, is that certainly at that time, I felt more included in the Welsh scene than I did the Bristol scene. Bristol was so up its own ass in terms of its legacy with Massive Attack and Port Said. And there's loads of cool music always coming out of Bristol. Sure. It was a bit like it knew it, whereas Cardiff, I never felt like, oh, well, you're not Welsh. 
it was like you're in you played your part like you were part of the scene and it wasn't maybe it's just welsh people are more friendly i don't know i loved it i loved my time in cardiff and i loved i never i was at uni that's why i was there and i never felt like i fitted in at uni but i i found my what's the word my tribe mm. through hus through hustler but also through just music generally like captain and the various other people that were really pivotal it was so inclusive it wasn't like oh your competition so i don't want you anywhere near it it was like come in let's all be part of it let's make it cool so it was yeah for me i look back at it really fond memories um i'm dj alchemy i'm from newport i've been djing for well since i was um about around 17 18 i think it was for my 18th birthday that uh my my girlfriend at the time her her dad actually bought me a pair of technics um so until then i was just basically using other people's um yeah and i just i i basically just used to practice about five six hours a day just the the basics you know the the beat matching and tune selection and stuff like that but um i suppose it was the dmc championships what got me into the more you know the as they say, they used to call it turntablism. I don't know if that is even still a thing now, the, that label. But uh, just the DMC videos, the scratching videos, and like uh, it was like Cubert at the time when he first came out, DJ Noise from Denmark, um, and just a ton of the, the DMC videos. Uh, yeah, I used to just watch them religiously and try and pick up any little tricks and and uh, and scratch techniques which probably took about a lot longer than I, I expected to, to come to fruition because about five or six times at least every five or six times a month, I would say, ah, that's it, I've had it. I, 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 can't, I just can't do this anymore. <laughs> and it was basically one day, um, like I pulled off what's called a, like a crab scratch. I was like, ah, oh, right, okay. So then I just realized you've just got to drill these things constantly. You know, um, I can't think what it's called now. I'm sure one of you guys might know. I think it's like the 10,000 hours. Yeah. Oh, the mastery. Yeah. yeah. So I, I read that somewhere and I just sit there constantly. I, I mean, I actually sit there at the decks, just trying these uh, techniques constantly. And it would it would just take sometimes weeks to even get one that sounded any good. But um, mm -hmm. I think I probably spent too much time doing that then <laughs> because... Like my scratching got better, but then I realized when I would be, um, you know, doing just normal DJ sets, um, whether that was in like what we call in the in in Wales, um, like the blues parties, um, yeah, I just realized, God, I should have really spent a lot of time uh, perfecting the mixing as well. It's <laughs> like not not a load of people in the parties just want to see me scratch, you know. So it's just uh, yeah, it's loads of things you've got to kind of perfect as a DJ. A lot of people think it's just about oh, but you're just playing other people's music. It's yeah, it's it's way way more complex than that. And I, I I think I'm probably speaking, um. Like maybe well not for myself. I'd say like a lot of people who are DJs would probably say like hip hop DJs kind of they they push the envelope. I think in regards to what can be done with turntables. Um, yeah. So that so I kind of went out of uh, DJing them for a while, but I'm just literally these uh last couple of weeks, I've been uh putting the decks back and uh trying to get some sets together. So, 
Nice. Yeah, I'm a bit rusty now, but uh, yeah, I'll 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 try that ten thousand hour technique again. <laughs> uh, mate, you, you'll soon blow that rust off, mate. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Um, yeah, I'm Ricardo Banks, uh, aka DJ Comfort. Um, again, like Eugene, I probably started DJing when I was around 17, 18. Um, uh, just in and out of shows and grime raves and underground hip hop shows uh, with MCs, kind of doing ciphers and you know just just running beats and instrumentals um for the guys um ended up touring um i, I got to a point after a few years where i thought i was a good dj uh, you know you get a bit confident you get some shows in your belt you think you're doing good um and then i remember it clear as day we were supporting oh we weren't supporting we were playing um freeze festival at battersea power station uh good few years ago it's maybe back in like 2012 2013 and um, Grandmaster Flash was one of the headliners. And I got to watch him from side stage. Yeah. And it was just like a moment where I just realized my complete lack of DJ knowledge and skill, if that makes <laughs> sense. I thought I, I thought I knew it all. I, like you said, I, th- I thought I could mix. Like I'd only really thought about the mixing of songs at that point. <laughs> um, and it opened my, my eyes to a whole new world of like, so that turntablism and just uh creativeness we're just using the decks and turntables turntablism as an art form itself yeah um and that set me on a whole other journey then um uh, and i'm probably the opposite to eugene in terms of i always class myself as a dj slash something else second um the djing has always been my my go-to i always say I'm, i'm a dj um i can produce a little um in the same sense that maybe everyone can dj a little you know um yeah but yeah, no, so that, that's been my journey. Um, I think we yeah, about seven, eight years ago, then really started getting to turntablism um, and, and trying to combine that with the mixing um, and have a groove and a blend that's like really individual and creative. And as a huge DJ fan, I actually get bored of turntablism in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love the DMC competitions, but I, I couldn't watch one through it, through itself, just all on its own. Because like you said, it's the it's the groove and everything else to go with curating a set and yeah. the input of the music itself that I really relate to. And I love, cause I just grew up as a huge music fan, uh, which I think is why I fell in love with DJing. I just got to choose what music was played at the parties I was going to, um, which for me was, you know, that's the joy. That's, that's the dream, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned the word junior cupboard a minutes ago. I want to take it back to that point. What was it that stuck out about those moments you and alchemy just spoke of that still have a lasting value today oh i think just uh little lessons you you pick up as you go um and for me it was a realization of you you don't know everything and and having that realization through the creative format that i love through music and through djing and that whole actually you're not as good as you think you are you still have a lot to learn you're always going to have a lot to learn yeah. You're never going to be the final product. That whole 10,000 hours of mastery. I mean, even if you do that 10,000 hours, someone's done 20,000. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's just how subjective it is, how creative it is, how much of a you can't be a big fish in a small pond. Like the pond is is never ending. So it's it's Yeah, well, um just going off on what uh, Ricardo said then is like I, I kind of class myself as humble anyway. I, I, I think I am, but um, there's nothing more like humbling <laughs> than, than uh, yeah, 
being in front of somebody who like far exceeds your capabilities as a DJ. But, you know, I think especially with hip hop, um, considering, you know, it's, it's very competitive. I think, um, you know, just seeing better DJs, it wouldn't have the, the a negative effect on me. You know, better DJs with better selection, if anything, that just it opened up my mind because there'd be some DJs I I thought I knew um, music from every genre going. You know, I thought you know I collect records, I got some stuff that you that you gotta hear, and then they would just like play ten tracks. I'm like I don't know one of these tracks, and I love every single one of them. Right. So it's like very humbling to to you know you you think exactly what Ricardo said. You're not that good. You know you still can learn. And I just think that competitive uh, streak in in hip hop and DJing in general these days, because I think like a lot of um, multi genre DJs, they can scratch, you know, unbelievably these days. It it would be, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, maybe a little bit more that it was uh, you, it was always the thing that what is a DJ if you can't scratch? I always hear that everywhere. Mm. And it used to be yeah. kind of a badge of honor for hip hop DJs. Like, well, I can scratch one. You know, now a lot of people from a lot of genres will will cut the turntables up or the the controllers. It's just and today, like, it moves so quick that I and you know a lot of maybe a lot of old school DJs are still stuck on the thing of you know it's got to be vinyl, which is just crazy to me when you see yeah. um the likes of DJ Craze and um you know the way they use the technology. And to his full capability, it's uh, it's like and again going back on what Ricardo said, the ten thousand hours thing, but DJ moves so quickly, it moves so quickly that if you just get stuck in one point and think I'm at my you know I'm at my my uh top point now I'm at the best point I can be, you turn on the you turn on YouTube two three weeks later and you're gonna see somebody that's doing just crazy routines creative routines that's gonna make you want to go straight back to the drawing board and that i think that's a great thing anyway so i was kind of a hermit with it you know it was a very um how would i explain it, it was kind of a very geeky type of um type of thing to be into at the, at the time believe it or not i mean djs now are superstars and it's cool and yeah. but i think um especially in the turntablism side of things you know that i that i was really into it was kind of considered a bit geeky but i loved that as well you know um yeah and so there wasn't there wasn't really much of a a, a place to to really to really uh you know show your skills or or you know, do a set that involved a lot of scratching until I came across um, uh, Club I Fall Back uh, when they used to have these these uh, hip-hop nights by, I'm sure it was Hustler Showcase. I think they were a, a crew of promoters from Bristol and they used to put a lot of hip-hop nights on. Mm. Um, so that was probably the first time of me, you know, going out and seeing turntablism right in front of my face with people reacting to it. And then I was thinking, you know, maybe there is something here and that kind of gave me the, um, you know, a little push to carry on because I really thought I was the only person in Wales that was into it at the time. Uh, I actually was playing sports at the time. I had a bad injury. I needed surgery. I was kind of like out of playing sports and I, I've always needed a hobby. Um, I've got quite a musical family. So instinctively, I was like, right, well, I want to do something to do with music. I always listening to music when I was playing sports anyway. Um I could never really uh, grasp playing a guitar or drums or piano. I always tried and I could dabble, but I could never really get it. 
Um, and I just started going out, just turned 18. Um, I actually, not long before this, just seen DJ Yoda for the first time. Yeah, crazy. Um, and, and again, we talk about um, hip hop DJs and, and maybe other, other genre DJs being able to scratch. But I'd actually say hip-hop DJing now is probably more known as open format DJing. Yeah, I think it's definitely. completely influenced how DJing and how creative DJing across all genres has become. Yeah. And I think that all really stems from hip-hop DJing as a culture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we could talk about that more later. But yeah, I think seeing Yoda just rock a party, rock turntables across all sorts of genres, you know, seamlessly blending genre to genre, no respect for just like right gotta play this gotta play that you know it was whatever the party needed um and it was done flawlessly loads of groove really vibey and for me i like that really caught my eye um so i just bought some really crappy old newmark belt drive turntables like you know like straight out of a car boot sale (laughs) a hundred quid or something with a crappy old mixer that barely worked um and just just kind of bought a load of records and we're just clanging them together for a few months to be honest um just learning the basics and and like you said like that one day it kind of clicked uh beats started to match i started having a clue what i was doing everything started to sound a little better um and i I was really lucky i was around really good people at the time people like captain um i was going to a lot of good venues like toucan like clubby babak where there was a lot of good nights going on um Cardiff Arts wasn't wasn't long after this so um I, I was just super lucky to be around really good people that put me onto good music into good venues into good learning experiences and got me really excited about it as an art form um and I think that was super important for me just to have people who were really inclusive and creative and encouraging around me at that time um because like you said it can be a competitive environment and I think without that encouragement sometimes people fall off yeah definitely. absolutely absolutely taking it back to something eugene said earlier about djing originally being something that was nerdy back in the day which is hard to believe talking about this now having this conversation <laughs> do you guys look back at any specific period for being the hardest to access information about hip-hop and how much that mythos about what you didn't know how much did that push to develop and inform your personality and identity in response to what hip hop was? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd say like obviously pre-internet era, it was a lot harder to you know to to keep up with um, anything that might be going on. Again, I, I just um, touched on. The, the gigs that I, and I think Ricardo did as well touched on like um the gigs that they had in Clubby for back. Mm. Well, I only found that out by just randomly walking through Cardiff one day and into like some tunnel and I seen a picture and I think they had um a hip hop group called the Smut Peddlers were playing in um in Clubby for back and I couldn't believe it. I was like I didn't think there was any hip hop gigs here at all. So it made me realize I've, you know, I've got to go and try and get out there and, and see what's going on because obviously, you know, as I say, pre-internet um, era, um, it's just a lot harder to find stuff. I mean, you can go on Facebook today and see a gig that's happening tomorrow and you could be there tomorrow. And that's as, that's as quick as the information um, will get to you. But um, yeah, when, when I was first started DJing, there was none of that about and you had to go through the channels of maybe like uh, Hip Hop uh, Connection magazine 
Um, just the, the really old fashioned way that some listeners name might think like, what is he talking about? A magazine for, to, <laughs> for a gig. <laughs> and, but uh, yeah, like what you said, I think it, it kind of, I think it builds you because, you know, when you have to go through um, things, whether it's practicing, um, you know, practicing from watching videos instead of watching actual tutorials on YouTube, you know, and and uh, where Ricardo said he bought, you know, the the cheap decks, the same thing as me. I was like using other people's decks, and they were like belt drives. And but I think if you if you can, you know, if you can do well on you know lesser equipment, and you know build uh, build your skills on lesser equipment, it's only going to get better when you use you know newer equipment. Um, I just think it, it builds you um, a bit better. And the thing is, then is these this day and age now as well so if you've gone through all that this is kind of a breeze you know where you've got access to information and you know it's not it's not to look down on anyone who's doing you know dj now because that's crazy i mean if the information's there you should use it you know it's gonna it's gonna shave so many hours and days and weeks and months off the time that you you know you'd have to put in to learn something and that's a good thing i don't know why you know some people are like, well, in my day, you know, I had to practice for <laughs> like, well, you know, if you had the information then and you didn't use it, you would be daft. It's crazy. So, yeah, I, yeah I, but I do think it, it builds you a bit, you know, a bit stronger. And uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Just just to follow on, like, and absolutely confirm everything you've just said. I think it just took a bit more effort back when yeah. I started. You had to put the effort in to, to find the tunes to know the artists, yeah. to know when the release was, to know if there was a gig going on. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Not even that, but then like learning, like you said, there wasn't YouTube tutorials. You you had to go and watch DJs. You had to speak to DJs. You had to yeah. actually, the, the effort involved in learning it um, was definitely a bit more involved than now. And not that there's not effort involved now. Yeah. I think, like you said, it's just, it's a lot more available now, which is probably why you see it a lot more prevalent across society. Yeah, and um, I think whereas... that's why they get uh, that's why some of the techniques and stuff that are coming out now and the and just the overall the creative bar is so high, it's because people can learn it quicker. And it's I, gross. It's yeah. Thing. It's incredible. Yeah. I think you have to move with the times and it evolves. Yeah. I think um, like you said, though, like you know, buying the old turntables and the belt drive and just learning kind of it reminds me of like if you learn to play the guitar, you you buy a cheap acoustic guitar, yeah. you learn the basics, then you buy a you know. An electric guitar and the pedals and all the the effects you can add on you don't yeah. buy all the gear straight away for thousands no, no. of pounds and expect to use it all <laughs> yeah. and i think i think with djing now even though all your all the gear no idea that's kind of like a phrase i could use for a lot of yeah. young djs just yeah, because you yeah. have all the equipment there doesn't mean you understand the nuances of how to use it and what you can actually create with it yeah definitely um, and i think some i always like i've taught a few people to dj and i've gone back to how i learned i've gone all right here's some vinyls yeah, some turntables like yeah. match with your ears make it all make sense and yeah like, definitely because as soon as you put your hands on anything else like it'll be it'll be golden you'll fly through it you'll yeah like, what you can create will be insane that's it absolutely take me into the lead up to your first gig in terms of practice in this preparation which we're talking about where were you buying your records and what was that time like as a growing period for you um myself um i used to get my records from a couple of places um there used to be a place in newport called hitman music which was a oh, it was a great great place and they used to have like a booklet that you could look through for like imports and stuff so i think at the time 
it would have been around the raucous records and the like the independent hip-hop era and that was probably my favorite era of hip-hop um so i used to just look through the, this book of imports and just oh can i have that one can i have that one <laughs> that yeah. one and then i'd have to go back you know a week or two and check it check through every day is my records in yet type of thing so um that was one place and i think the other place was um a catapult in cardiff as well um yeah. i used to go there every couple of weeks and see what you know what new records they had there um and I think, yeah, most of the stuff that I would know, I would know what to buy because of, um, you know, he's 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 not really a person I want to name check on a on a on a show these days. But you know, Tim Westwood at the time, it was the only place really to hear any sort of uh, any sort of hip hop, unless you lived in London. You know, you could pick up yeah. the local radio stations. So um, I would just write stuff down when I would hear, you know, certain tracks that I liked. And then again, HHC. If I'd read a review, and then you just build knowledge from that way. You you know you you know affiliated artists and stuff. So anytime I would know uh, a name on the paper, I would just like a lot of the records I still have is just stuff that I took that I took a gamble on, you know. Because in them days, you would pay you know ten ten bucks, twelve bucks for an import, and it could be two tracks. <laughs> and if they turn up and you know they're rubbish, it's just like devastating. You've just spent twelve or 24 bucks if you buy double records you've just wasted it type of thing so you know you have to really curate what you buy then as you as you uh learn <laughs> the pain the pain of uh getting those records imported and hearing them for the first time and just realizing yeah. your money had just gone down the drain <laughs> yeah. i still i still actually got a like a bucket of records like this like huge bucket with these records in and they stay in there i'll never use them again I don't know why I can't chuck them away. I can't bring myself to chuck them away, but I'll never use them. There's some absolutely awful stuff in their life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, to follow on, though, I think, yeah, so um, I, I was solely in Cardiff at the time. So so Catapult Records was was where I was at. Kind of every few days I was checking in. I was one of those annoying kids, you know, always turning <laughs> up like, what, what you got in today, Simon? Yeah. Um, just asking constantly. Um, so that was kind of like the holy grail for me um and then there was always a like the random little record shops and kind of like um like the vinyl and all these little random like secondhand record shops um yeah. my, my dad used to always go around searching for metal records in these shops when i was younger so i used to always go in so i, I kind of had like a little network where i knew where they all were yeah um so i used to go in and try and find like little gems in there and like you know like things were still pretty cheap as well in those those shops so you could just you could take the gamble then on stuff you didn't know yeah um so that was cool so i always found some gold that way like did a lot of like accidental education in those places to be honest um and then like you said at westwood was was massive at the time it's not great to name check him now but but at the time <laughs> what, what what he was doing i mean it, i think that was so integral for it was a necessity wasn't it back then yeah absolutely. it was nothing else like that so it's a shame everything that's happened since or you know what's come out since but right. again yeah. he, he I was dj before him as well in um I can't think what the club was in Cardiff, and uh, yeah, just for the record, he was an asshole then as well. So <laughs> <laughs> we um we we ended up going down on uh one of his shows. They used to do ciphers. He's got like a studio down in London somewhere. That's we right. ended up going down and doing a freestyle down there, and uh, he was just the oddest guy. Honestly, I can't <laughs> explain. We only spoke to him for a couple of minutes, but he was like a character of himself. It was yeah. super, super weird, super weird. <laughs> I think it's important to note 
as well that we're talking about an era in which secrecy kind of leaves hip-hop what kind of role does secrecy play in your craft back then as a dj um yeah it it did to be honest if i was uh if i was to say that i didn't you know put labels over some of my records i'd be lying <laughs> because um i just well i think in them days like it is the competitive nature as well but you know, if you put a lot of the work in, you know, and you're finding these these great records and you're going to Lems to 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 find them and, and buy them, get them imported, and then somebody's just like looking over your shoulder, right? What's that? I'll have that. I suppose yeah. this is very territorial and maybe a bit silly to some, you know, but in that era it was it that was the thing. You know, if 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 you turn up and, and play just the, the, the best records, like the you know, the best reaction on the night. And then some guy says to the owner of the club, I'll do that for like 50 bucks cheaper. And I got all them tracks, you know, yeah. that could lose you a job, that could lose you money. And so I think that was a, a, a big part of it as well, the competitive nature. I don't think it's it's like that at all these days because just of how easy music is to, to find, you know, and how out there it is to find. And you can put your app on your phone if you if a DJ's playing a track that you like. And t- to be honest, I'm I'm older now and I just I would rather show people music now. I mean it's probably crazy to say as a DJ you want to hide music from people. <laughs> but but it's from other <laughs> DJs, but I suppose that's what it was for because of that competitive nature. Um I think that's completely eradicated to 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 the point that everyone would just rather share good music these days, maybe. Um, I suppose there's probably still places where, you know, DJs are, are still still doing that thing with, you know, covering their records or, you know. Um, there's, there, there actually used to be a thing on um, on Serato. It was called uh, Train Spotter Mode, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he used to he used to block out what tracks were playing, so uh, it's still, still there. The That's still an option. You can still tick that Is box it? on Serato. Oh, there you go. oh yeah. <laughs> no, I think you're. I think you're bang on, huge. I think. I think it's exactly like we said earlier, because you have to put that extra effort in to find the tunes, then to actually go out and locate the the record. And yeah, they, they weren't as available as they are now. Like I'm a member of like two record pools, so I pay like I don't know, like fifty bucks a month, and I I can get pretty much any song on the planet. Yeah, you know what I mean, like clean version, dirty version, instrumental, yeah. an intro without an intro, like acapellas. You know, yeah, whereas. If you had said that to me 10 years ago, I would have been like, what is this gold mine you're, that you're talking about? Is that heaven? Yeah, like, yeah. So I think it's just that that difference in availability of music drove a yeah. lot of attitudes. Um, whereas now, yeah, if someone asks me, oh, what's that song? It's like, oh, this is the song. This is the this is the version of it I'm playing. This is where you yeah. can get it. It's, I think it's, but it's also driven and it's DJing to evolve, especially yeah. creatively. And I think that's what you said. It, it's driven a lot more expressionism people are a lot more creative with it now techniques are kind of new techniques are coming up everywhere you're seeing these 12 year old kids that are just insane yeah um and i think that that has a lot to do with the availability of that music and the competitive nature has kind of changed slightly now whereas it was what was the records you had back in the day yeah now it's like right what are you doing with them now yeah that's literally what i was just gonna say i think it's the to the point now that you could say he is my whole set you know, welcome to it. You're going to, you know, and if if we had the same set with the same records in the same order, it's going to sound completely different every every DJ, how they it's mix, a... what part they want to use, what part Absolutely. they scratch, what, how they blend it, you know, if they're going to do an outro, you know, there's yeah. so many options. So, 
yeah, yeah it's, it sounds kind of cheesy but i always say now the songs you use are like the ingredients yeah uh, and how you mix it is like how you cook them yeah exactly so yeah, i mean you can have good. the same ingredients but you can prepare a completely different meal yeah definitely. um like do you know what i mean it sounds kind of cheesy but to me that's the best analogy yeah it's a good analogy it yeah that, that it definitely works that's that's exactly how i would would, would explain it too you know is yeah it's, just, it's it's kind of the same as um same type of thing as beat making and uh when they do uh like these producer battles and i didn't used to like them because i think oh everyone's gonna have the same sample and then I done one uh, beat battle, and literally like fifty beats were made, and the very there was like two or three that sounded very similar. The rest of them was completely different. So it was the same well, type of thing. Yeah. I was always taught to like, what do you like about music? Bring that to what you do. Um, like, don't just watch other DJs and try to copy them because you're only ever going to be a second-rate version of them. Yeah. You're never going to do what someone else does as well as they do it. Yeah. Um, and I think that message was kind of drilled into me from the get-go. Um, so for me, I was always just trying to do my own thing um, and make it sound as good as I could to my friends. As stupid as that sounds, that's literally as simple as I ever saw a DJ in for a few years. Uh, and that's all I focused on. I didn't really focus too much on genre or... Yeah, this is the 16 I have to I have to mix into or out of or I kind of was lawless with it because that's how I was told I could be. Um so I think for me just I wasn't focused on trying to be unique. So it just kind of evolved that way. I kind of evolved my own style. And I think that only happens when you feel you have that freedom to do so. I think a lot of people especially now with the YouTube tutorials and the amount of information that's out there, it's so easy just to copy something yeah. rather than actually learn why or how something works and then apply that to what you want it to be. Um, so I think for me, I was, I was super lucky to have like good influences around me from the get go. Um, so I think it definitely took me a few years. I definitely learned the hard way. Um, but I think I learned from the get-go, like if you're not going to be individual and unique in what you bring, then it's kind of no point bringing it. What are you bringing? Yeah. And I think that's what I was taught from the get-go. So that's kind of what I say to everyone. It's just, just do you unapologetically. That's what's going to, that's what's going to work for you. Um, myself, um, it can take like something. If I, if I wanted to say now, I wanted to work on a, on, on a mix CD, which I'm, probably thinking of doing in the next couple of months over Christmas. Um, it would take it would take a good couple of months to get to a point where I think, yeah, I want to make this CD, you know, and probably do it like really old style and do it all in one take and then just add layers as I go. Or oh, but if I were play if I was playing out somewhere, um yeah, kind of a mixture of what Ricardo said and completely and at anal about things as well, because I'll I'll listen to like hundreds of tracks and just like handpick 30, 40 tracks. And then I'll spend just stupid amount of time trying to blend them in perfect. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm, I'm into like a lot of funk, like old school funk and things, and they're the, just the absolute hardest to, to mix because <laughs> a lot of them were done like with live drummers. So you're going to fluctuate, oh, yeah. you know, on the, the, the BPMs is just going to fluctuate up and down throughout the record. So you kind That's of just right. got to, ride the pitch constantly and 
it's really interesting but i mean if you're trying to do a mix cd and you you mess up on a mix it's like oh you gotta do it all again <laughs> but um i kind of weirdly enjoy that type of thing anyway so um yeah to, to get to a point where i think i'm doing something unique is is just painstakingly going through uh tracks that i think will work and trying to get them to mix and then probably turning up on the night and come doing a completely different uh, version <laughs> of that. <laughs> Where I'll just be like, okay, well, this is not working. Let's just go to this and then just do everything on the fly. So it's so, yeah, it's so scattergun the way I do things. So, right. yeah. When you think about rap as a point of discovery in the beginning, what would have been the song that single-handedly led to your biggest hip-hop epiphany and exposed you to a song's deepest ripple effect? Uh, that's um, it's definitely it's gonna be Eric B and Rakim, um, because like my my era would probably be classed where I was you know buying music and really deep in the music would be the early to mid nineties. But I was exposed to uh to hip hop through my cousin who was a break dancer, um, and he he used to babysit me like my parents would go out on the weekend. So he used to babysit me and all the, the break dancers would come over to the house and they'd all be in the kitchen, you know, popping and locking and and then they'd be in the living room, you know, having little battles and stuff. So I was just immersed in it from probably seven years of age. Um, so it, it actually, it would probably be a, like a lot of the early electro records, but I always just remember hearing it would probably be um, maybe Don't Sweat the Technique, maybe just before that as well. It would definitely be an Eric B. and Rakim track because I just remember that voice. I'd always remember hearing that voice and when they would yeah. be in the, the, you know, popping and locking, it was just that voice would always, it'd always be that voice I could notice whichever track it would be. So then I think when I got a bit older, maybe like when I was about 12, 13, I was, uh, you know, buying the Eric B and Rakim records then myself, and was like, and that was kind of nost- like nostalgia at thirteen. How do you get nostalgia at thirteen? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just so. remembered it from when I was younger. So it would, yeah, that would be it. Would be definitely be an Eric B and Rakim record, for sure. Uh, so mine's probably the the least. I, I don't know how to describe it, but I'm just gonna come out with it. So my first ever experience with hip hop was Will Smith, mm. Willennium. First album I ever bought on CD. I was okay. about ten years old. Um, my family were not no no one else in my family was a hip hop fan. Um, so I grew up listening to terrible music. My mother was a Phil Collins and ABBA fan. Kenya, <laughs> my dad was uh, into his his metal music, uh, and my sister was just into Spice Girls and you know all, all the nonsense. So that was kind of everything I had around me. Um, and then the first time I went in to actually buy. I think I was in um, HMV, maybe. I know it was Virgin Records. Sorry, it used to be in Capital Centre. Virgin Records. Yeah, I remember that. Um, I was let loose in there with like my own bit of money for the first time ever. So I went to buy a CD, and the one that caught my eye was Will Smith, Willennium. Because it was just the first kind of rap CD I'd ever seen, which sounds hilarious now looking back at it, Will Smith. <laughs> but that was genuinely my first ever experience with hip-hop and rap, and it blew my mind. And like that album... Like it's a terrible album, I'm gonna call it. But <laughs> like it was hugely, hugely influential on me because I was like, Oh, what is this music? What is this? This is so yeah. great. This is so well, this is so he's cool. influential like, in hip hop, you know, uh, massively anyway, you know, where yeah. people yeah. Are, they'll try and discount what he done because of his later stuff, but his earlier stuff with uh, Jazzy Jeff was, you know, it was really uh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you say with Jazzy Jeff, and I mean that in itself says everything. Yeah. 
like but yeah so yeah will smith because then obviously i got into like naughty by nature yeah so that whole train then of just funky fun hip-hop that came after yeah. that um and that definitely that definitely was like the big learning curve for me then yeah uh, and where i really got into it so yeah will smith millennium big up will smith for getting me into hip-hop <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to give me three examples of songs or albums that change the way you think about rap as a fan and a dj what would those records be and why um the first record would be nwa straight out of compton because i remember i had that on tape and my mum went berserk when she heard the <laughs> when she heard the lyrics but uh even, I think even at that age, I think I was about, I may have been about 10, 10 or 11. Um, it was just like a movie to me. It was, a, it was, I was listening to like, a, I think it was Gangster Gangster, the the story on there where Ice Cube tells the story about going in the party and I could just picture everything. And it was the first time I, I kind of had like a, that type of experience with music because I was always into music from when I was like, six or seven my mum said I used to take top of the pops I was into 80s music and the cure and um yeah just I, I was buying like CDs um tapes sorry CDs I was buying tapes I remember my brother bought um Queen the Queen album and I bought uh the PGs and we swapped very quickly because the PGs were rubbish so <laughs> I was always buying music then but it was just like I was I liked the music, but it didn't grab me at all. And I think yeah, when I heard Straight Out of Compton, that was the, the very first one. Um then after that, I'd say it was probably Company Flow, um, Fun Crusher Plus, uh, just because that was just so weird and experimental. And it's like it was a very like sci-fi influenced. And um uh, I was into like sci-fi films and things like that as well. So it was the first time I heard you know, that kind of mesh of sci-fi. Nice. imagery as well on the the album cover um to go along with the music and it just sounded so weird and strange that it um resonated with me and you know i think if you play that now it still sounds kind of fresh because it was it was that that ahead of his time and i mean lp still doing the production um today with like obviously run the jewels and um some of the run the jewel stuff is not a million miles away from some of the stuff on the company flow album as well so it really was ahead of his time and then it's probably Wu Tang as well, the the Thirty Six Chambers, because that just blew my mind. And again, I was into yeah. like kung fu films as well, like every kid is, I think, and uh, in the eighties and nineties. And um, yeah, just them beats. It was, it was just again, it was something that as soon as I I heard the first, um, I think it's Bring the Ruckus, the in intro track, the first yeah. track. Yeah. I was just like, this is just sounds. It sounds like something you just concocted in your bedroom type of thing. It was that raw and gritty, and it was just yeah. It didn't sound like anything else that was out at the time. So yeah, that was probably they're probably my three I would pick. Strong, strong. Um, yeah, it was, I mean Wu Tang was definitely one I was gonna say, but um, I'll, I'll choose a different one off the cuff. I'll probably say Jay Z, The Blueprint. Yeah. Um, again, just the first Jay Z album I heard, um, and I just loved it. It was just, it's incredible. I thought like the production on it was insane. Just the verses, the album, the hooks, everything, everything was great. I loved it. Um, so that was a big album for me. I'm trying to steer away from the obvious, obvious. <laughs> um, and then, then two, um, which are from the UK, which were, they made hip hop more relative to my life, if this makes sense. Um, so foreign beggars, asylum speakers. Yeah. 
um just because that was like to hear uk hip-hop like of that quality that was that was my life do you know what i mean like, everything yeah. i heard in those songs was like what i experienced on a day-to-day -day basis so it was like your know, hip-hop was relative to me it wasn't just something that was happening in america all of a sudden yeah yeah um so that, that was huge for me um just to make it relevant and realistic to my life uh definitely brought me closer to hip-hop and then um awfully deep by roots maneuver yeah great. um nice just yeah great album just again then just open my ears to what hip-hop could be it broke my my kind of glass ceiling and what i, I thought hip-hop was mm. uh it opened my mind to what hip-hop could be um it, it got me out of that it has to be boom bap has to be x has to be y has to be z it could be anything yeah um and yeah it just, just blew my mind from a musical point of view nice Nice. When you think about hip hop in Wales developing during that time, what do you think were the biggest turning points that changed the perception of Welsh hip hop in the southeast? Um, it's it's a it's a I know it's like a very tiered question because, to be honest, at the time, um, when I was really uh, you know heavily into the the independent hip hop that was out at the time, I didn't I wasn't even aware that there was Welsh hip hop. This is um. This is like the early. This again would probably be the early nineties. Okay. Um, and the only time I heard about Welsh hip hop at the time was a couple of like reviews that I read in HHC, and it was um, oh, what were they called? Swansea Crew. They were. Um, I'll think of the name, but uh, yeah, they 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 appeared in HHC quite a bit, and I was like, Welsh hip hop. This is that's crazy. I can't imagine Welsh hip hop. Are you talking about Headcase Lads? Headcase Lads. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> That's, That's the one. And uh, yeah, so I just, it was, I, I wasn't aware that there was uh, much uh, Welsh hip hop out. And I so. think the turning point for me at the time, and it was a major thing, was the Squid Ninjas album, the uh, yeah, yeah. Revenge of the Blowfish. I mean, I heard that and I was like, whoa, this is like really heavy. It was, it, it was almost Wu Tang esque, you know, and there was so many MCs on there and that the quality of production was amazing as well. Um, yeah, I think that was a major thing. And I think uh, the other one would be Junior Disprol, um, because I went to uh, the Toucan Club, and I actually DJed there um, just off the cuff because uh, a DJ didn't turn up. So they were like, "Does anyone DJ?" And I was like, "Yeah." I put my hand up, yeah. and there was just a box of records there, and I remember it was like Funk Dubious and a few others, and I thought right, I can get with this type of thing. So I just spun a couple of tracks, um, and then they done like a freestyle, um, like an open mic freestyle. So they were saying, get some instrumentals. And I was like, these are not my records. I don't know where things are. So I was just like flowing through the records, flicking through and just throwing on random instrumentals. And uh, yeah, and that was, I seen people then all freestyling and I could hear the accents and I loved it. You know, um, a lot of people like, I don't know, I think maybe more like the American listener, they would struggle at first to listen to like different accents. I don't think it's as bad now. Yeah. Um, I think they're more open-minded now because of just, how big hip hop is worldwide now, but um, yeah, it was the first time of me hearing, you know, a full on Welsh accent, um, and like the different dialect, the different type of um, you know, the Barry accent, and then, <laughs> you know, a, a Cardiff accent, and then somebody from the valleys on the mic. I was like, this is crazy, and that so, that would be a major turning point for me because it actually made me think, of you know, this could be something you could do. You know, because I always wanted to make beats or something. I I knew I wanted to do something in hip hop, but I couldn't break dance. I couldn't rap at all. It was terrible. 
So like DJ and I was like, that's what, you know, that's what I'll do. And I think then the longer it went on, that's why I, I, you know, went to making beats, but that was the, I think that was the single most pivotal uh, night was being in that Toucan club and seeing other people from Wales fully immersed and, you know, doing, you know, making hip hop. That would probably be the, the main one for me. Yo, Matt Beats. the button. Yeah. Now watch. Matt Beats. Metaphysical out in stores near you. Gonna get that. Bump that shit to the grades and it's on us. Some finest. Joey Tegas. Squid Ninjas. Yo. Listen, yo. Straight tipsy with the Yale folks This life's colourful in love with a Athena's Exploding with Jasmine Nothing but a black cloud surrounding my matrix A back savage hanging phantoms in the opera house Cast magic smoke fatties till my lungs scream Hug a green ganja plant naked fucking budlings Spliff humming looking forward to a bag of fruit Kiss the gods getting fed by a prostitute Rag a poet off his stool at an open mic Heavy drunk stumbling blinded by the red eye A scroll visual fish hooking sensei Moonlit renegade of four into madness, share the absinthe for nice guys since day one. Scrambled data through a dusty road, murder. Don't fuck with the serpents. First killer, piss lippy rappers left buried up in Murphy. Batter crates and Miller, then walk with applause, face drawn ugly like the zombies in Thriller. Tame lizards in the midnight, I'm stress free, dreaming of a porn girl cooking up my red meat. My flow pedigree, my hands bleed belting. Petrified skeletons trapped in my own brain. Spit blades at your chest, leave you open. I think um, for me, it's probably a record and it was a metaphysical by MetaBeats. Yeah. Um, again, for me, I, I still on repeat. That's, that's been on repeat since I listened to it first time around, like just timeless. And again, like exactly like you said, hearing accents that were Cardiff, Barry, people I knew, people I saw in size at the time and, you know, people I was seeing on a regular basis in the clubs and in the bars we were going to and here they were making this amazing hip hop and rapping like real G's and, but doing it with such quality and such realism. Um, and yeah, it brought it home. It just, I think for me, making hip hop relative to my life at that age was a really big thing. Um, and that album, like I, I put that up against a, a lot of albums to this day. Yeah. I think, I think it's absolutely great. Um, like big, bigger, yeah. Bigger, better beats every time completely changed the trajectory didn't it uh, absolutely it, it was huge it um like to me up until then um hip-hop in wales was goldie looking jay yeah I, and i mean i were no disrespect to goldie looking jay they took like when when i joined astro boys they took us on our first ever tour um you know but to me that was kind of all i really knew of hip-hop in wales um yeah. i was a little ignorant at the time to what was actually going on around me I think um, a lot of people were the same though, you know, uh, me being from Newport as well. Um, even to this day, it's like if if uh, we say we're from Newport, like Golden Chain, are you part of them? And it's like, yeah, you know, there's other people in, in Wales that make hip hop. <laughs> and again, no disrespect them. I know a few of the boys out there and they're a cool bunch of lads as well. Uh, they're good guys, man. They're really good guys and they smash what they do. Yeah, that's um, it. That's it. But, but here in, just like you said, like the different levels, yeah uh, and like legitimizing hip-hop and, and rap like to that extent just yeah. to the to the you know the guy we saw every day around the corner and yeah. he was absolutely killing it um so that was huge for me it opened my eyes to like it doesn't matter that you're from cardiff you can still yeah do whatever you want to do within hip-hop you know 
What would have been the moment where you felt like everything started to change for yourselves? You want to go there, Ricardo? Yeah, you can go yeah first. I mean, um, for me, it was um, definitely during maybe the first couple of years of when I was with Astro Boys. Um, we started out kind of slow. Uh, we were doing kind of like grime tours and doing a bunch of shows, just whatever we could get our like grubby little paws on. We would turn up and we would we would bang out our songs. Do you know what I mean? We would vibe out as much as we could. Um, and it was a steep learning curve because we were not very good when we started, admittedly. <laughs> um, but like we had hearts, we would just go out and do it, you know. Um, and I think it was when we played Glastonbury, and we were not supposed to have this set, by the way. Like uh, we were put on. Oh, I cannot remember the name of the area now, but it was the nighttime area um we were supposed to have like a, a set at like 10 o'clock till half 10 it was still a really good set but the stage was like the main stage in this area so it was like 5,000 cap kind of outside stage uh and our set ended up getting pushed back till 1 a.m till 1 30 just before shy effects who were obviously headlining the stage yeah. for that night um and bear in mind we were literally like just like super green at this point super super green like we were in no way ready to be playing a stage of this size <laughs> at 10 p.m let alone warming up for shy effects um but we went out and just we played to like yeah it must be like five five and a half thousand people yeah. and at, at that point you know my biggest show was like 100 people 150 people 200 at, at absolute push that's my biggest show ever i think <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> so like yeah like talk about being dropped in the deep end yeah. um but so that was when it it really clicked for me like okay this could actually be a thing because right. we suck right now and we're doing all right at this um so like if we actually hit our potential hit our straps running and we keep putting the work in like we are like we could really take take off with this um and to an extent we did but mm. that was that was the big kind of moment for me that was like okay this could actually be like a real a real thing that this could change your life yeah, for, for for me, um it wasn't so much of like um you know playing a live um a live show or anything. It was because, you know, at the time, like I say, I don't think there was uh, many people that I knew personally that that actually made hip hop actively. Um and I went to a skin dread gig in um I think it was yeah, a skin dread gig in Newport. And then when I was leaving the skin dread gig, I uh, I seen Steve, uh Joe and somebody else giving out CDs. So these are friends of mine that were in a rock group called Juggernaut. Um, but at the time, obviously, I didn't know who they were. So they were just giving out these CDs. And I was like a bit drunk. So I'm like, oh, yeah, do you need a DJ? Uh, and they were like, yeah, we actually do need a DJ. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll listen to the CD when I get home. So I went home and um, I listened to the CD. I was like, oh, I like this. So there was a number on the CD, um, met the guys, and then started uh, just just going to jams and and that to me that was the first realization that you know other people actively do it you know that i know now i can you know because all my friends were into music and stuff but they were never you know participating in it they were just like fans you know right. um the same as i was at the time but i always had some sort of burning desire to do something in hip-hop or music in general so so that was probably the first time i was like Oh, this is what I want to do. And when I went there and I was jamming and I seen Joe um like with the MPC, 
like tapping these beats out and and then I seen like live MCs there and I'm scratching along with it. I was like, I felt what have I been doing for the last like 10, 15 years? What mm-hmm. have I been doing? You know, I've I looked at it as, you know, probably wrongly. I looked at it as wasted time. I was like, why well, I wish I would have met these guys 10, 15 years ago. You know, I would have been 15 years in, but it was just, yeah, it was a massive realization that other people are doing it and like nothing, no, no nothing came in my head. Like, Oh, I can make money. It's just I wanted to be creative with people, so that was the, the the first the first main thing. And I think then after a couple of weeks, they drafted in uh, Nick, which is a Punra who I'm in applied science with, and we hit it off straight away. Um, because we were both into blues music, um, and like uh early hip hop stuff. Um, that you know I only thought a few people knew. He knew the same people. So we instantly hit it off and straight away, I was like, oh, I'd love to like do an album with you one day. But at the time I had made one beat. So I was just like, I just staring at Joe throughout all the, all the practices. And how do you do this, Joe? How do you do that then? Or can you do this? Can you pitch it up? Can you and just get in as much information out of Joe as I could? And then um, then I just got the music uh, software. So I think started on Reason. I'm still using Reason to this day as well, along with a few other things. But okay. That was the that was the night was actually meeting um Steve and Joe and you know uh, I think Dan uh, was the guitarist there as well. It was just seeing other people actively doing it and being involved and being in involved with like other creative people that I thought you know yeah this is something I want to do something with this whether it's going to turn into a job or just a full time hobby you know this is what I want to do. So that was probably the most important night you know musically for me. Well, there is a correlation between the music you were making as a part of Juggernaut, the music you were making as Applied Science, and of course, Asteroid Boys, in that you're mixing different genres. Can you speak to cross-pollinating different musical genres and amalgamating those styles as a synthesis of the energy within Rap's Fabric? Energy was a big one for us. Uh, like Everyone in the group kind of came from different backgrounds musically, although we all had hip-hop and rap as kind of like our our sole like common factor that we all loved um, but everyone had slightly different other interests and when we were making music one thing that we we really loved especially about hip-hop and I think grime was kind of coming up through was the big scene that was upcoming at the time but the, the energy was very similar to the old school punk energy yeah uh, it was just that like you you can't tell us what to do like yeah. anymore like this this is us like unapologetically like no holds barred no f's given this is what you get this is us like we're not being pushed around kind of vibe and that the energy was just so similar uh and one thing we noticed when we started doing some shows was that we would have skater kids there we would have like the hip-hop and, and grime kids there we would have some of the in, in inverted commas moshers there you know, we would have all these different groups of kids there yeah. um, and they would come to the shows and it made us realize that like, there's not really any barriers um, apart from what you put in place yourself. Yeah. Um, so for us, it was just the energy. As long as the energy was right, we weren't too focused on how far into one specific or two or three specific genres we were delving. I think that was the big thing for us was just the energy. As long as the energy felt right, we were happy with that genre um yes it's very similar um like the cross-pollination and you know the 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 different genres within 
within what you know anything that I do, especially like maybe with applied sciences, the more I don't know, I wouldn't say the more experimental, but yeah, where we we kind of put some uh, blues influence in there, rock influence. Um, it's probably down to like listening to Public Enemy and things anyway. So it was already, you know, it was already something that I was aware of. In and and hip hop's ability to mesh other genres is I don't think it's some I think it's unparalleled because I don't see as many genres you know that you can really incorporate blues and jazz and uh, rock punk. You know, this it's just yeah. I think it's it lends itself to being, you know. Uh, cross genre if if you want to use that term but like nick came from um from a metal background or rock background as well you know he was um he was in a group called the kennedy soundtrack who were like um i think they were signed to like a subsidiary of sony before they he actually went to like america to record with um e swift from the alcoholics and things so yeah he was he was in that background anyway and i always like i like my rock and metal as like i'm crazy i don't know how to describe like my listening habits can just vary from like week to week like i won't listen to hip-hop at all for weeks and i'll listen to like i'm mad into like 70s prog rock and things so i'll listen to that for a few weeks and i'll listen to blues for a few weeks and so yeah meeting nick was kind of the thing i was like okay yeah he's into rock he's into metal as well he's into the same type of stuff as me um but again just hearing like public enemy and and I know there's a lot more I just can't think but they were just the main one I can remember they, it was just so like un hip hop if you if I don't know if that that makes sense but they were just so noisy and so yeah and again energy the energy involved in some of their music I was like this is crazy it's like it actually you could you could play that to a rock crowd and they lose their mind you know public enemy could could play them them um stadiums or you know and them festivals all day because you know them like uh ricardo said you know the mosh kids are like it the skaters are gonna like it and you know so i think it's not something that we thought you know nobody else is doing this we're gonna put rock and then a bit of blues into it it already you know most things have been done before but it kind of shows you like again you don't have to be oh it's just got to be a you know a, a standard hip-hop beat and I think if you've got influences, you know, if you listen to music, you know, at any sort of level, const, you know, constantly, they're going to bleed. They're going to bleed into why you do all the influences anyway. It's just how then people, you know, you're just hoping that people will get on board and, you know, resonate with what you do. How much creativity do you both find in that transferal of energy? Um, I don't like, I don't know if I got the question, but like transfer of energy for me, <laughs> is pretty much non-existent when I make a music because I it's it's always on my own like 99% of the stuff I do is on my own right um in a room on my own um like me and Nick would record like um an album at his we'd make sure I would go to his house we'd have beers you know we would record we recorded the the first album which is called Booze Blues and Hip Hop which was um like an ode to Diamond D it was kind of a homage to the stunts, okay. blunts, and hip hop, um, but we that was recorded like ninety nine percent drunk, you know, and I wasn't just <laughs> let's make an album when we're drunk. It was just that was the natural way we used to do it. We used to have fun, and uh, yeah, but so I would probably spend months at a time on my own making beats and just consumed with listening to hundreds and hundreds of tracks a day to find 
some weird samples. And then I'd be like a caged animal. Like, oh, I've got to get the next to like some let off some energy because I'd been on my own for the last couple of weeks making the beats. So, but I think that transfers then onto the music when it's recorded live and it's kind of like a really vibey, lively atmosphere when we're recording. So I think it gets a bit of that in there. But the actual making of the music is very, I don't know, it's very, I wouldn't solitary. say lonely. solitary. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's a great word. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's like a slightly different approach. So I mean, in terms of DJing, uh, I think that's really where I vibe on that that kind of transfer of energy, especially to a, a live crowd. Um, and especially like Eugene was saying earlier, when you you kind of have something in your head planned, like you're gonna you're gonna do a couple of these these mixes, a couple of these little routines, and all of a sudden you you go a little off kilter, you go a bit off piste, and and then everything's just being done on the fly. So, yeah. but as you're doing it, the crowd are getting more into it. And then you're vibing more off the fact they're vibing it so much. So you're getting even more creative. Everything's sounding better. And it, when you get caught up in one of those kind of upward cycles, where it's almost like you can't put a hand or finger wrong. Yeah. Um, that for me is like when you really just find the flow, uh, when you're just going on the fly in a club, playing tunes, just, just a couple of little juggles, a couple of little scratches, just everyone's vibing. And it's a real party. That to me is weird. Like I come into my own as a DJ. I feel like that to me is like, yeah, this is this is what, I always kind of dreamt of being a DJ would be like, um, but yeah, the energy in that to me is, is, is what, what I love about DJing and music. Like you said, sometimes making music can be a bit, a bit intense or a bit solitary. Um, but when you play it out and you're actually in a crowd of people who are vibing it back, yeah, that's kind of, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. I just realized as well, I answered the question from a production standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> It's just it's because... relevant. It's relevant, of course. Yeah. It's all relative. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this value today between a rapper and a DJ and what feels like and has felt like for the longest time a tug of war and fight for visibility in terms of pushing the music and culture forward? Um I, I, me personally, I just, I just think it's a an an error thing. I know that can come across as kind of a cop out type of thing, but you know, I never get never get annoyed at you know, um, like a a younger artist not having a DJ. You know, it's just probably just the error is right. changed. Um, the importance of the DJ in in regards, this is strictly just in a live type of setting. You know, live music type of setting. Um, I think it's it's not as prevalent anymore. Like it wasn't at the start, you know, to be honest, it was the, 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 the MC, you know, the MC was just like in the background when hip hop first said the DJ was the main man, you know? And then I think over the years, then I think um, the MC became the most important. Now I think they just, they kind of live on their own separate um, vibe, you know, but um, mm. I suppose it just, it depends maybe error. And just if the, if the music that the the artist makes lends to having a DJ there with them as well, you know, as part of the show, then I think, yeah, it, it can be, it can be, uh, it can be really good. But I mean, again, I wouldn't get really uh, annoyed at at any level for you know if I just went to watch somebody uh, at a live show and they didn't have a DJ, you don't have to, you know, if your music's strong enough and it it, it lends to you being the main focal point, then you know, more power to you, you know, and uh, I don't think it could be forced either. So if it, if they don't naturally want to be 
you know, have a DJ in their music. Like if their DJ's not producing their records or, you know, producing their, their album or something, then there's maybe, you know, there's not as much uh, need for him to be there, you know, if, if yeah. uh, I just think that, yeah, I just think it's an error thing. I think it's an error thing really. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm not same as huge. I'm not, I'm not mad at anyone for not having a DJ or anything like that. Um, I think a lot of what artists require from DJs these days, generally just standing there and pressing play, to be honest, yeah. let, yeah. let my, let my PA run. Yeah. Um, press track three. Um, I've been in that situation where that that's been the case. And I'm like, my dude, you really didn't need to ask me to do this. Uh, uh, I'm happy <laughs> yeah. to do this, but I mean, you, you probably could have got your mum to come and stand here and do this. You know, <laughs> like, this is pretty, easy, this is pretty easy stuff. Um, so again, like you said, like I mean, because they're going by the strengths of their music. Um, right. But then, as someone that's a bit of a purist and a bit nerdy into it, I'm like, when I watch a live show, I think there's levels to it. Mm-hmm. So that's cool to me. Is like I'm not going to be mad at you for that, but I'm not going to rate you as much as the next person that did get a really good DJ to run their tracks and to organize their set and to fill those gaps yeah. and to do the little bits and to, and to run it properly. Cause I notice those things because those are little things that I like to bring yeah. when I'm with a, an artist or an MC, if that makes sense. So to me, I'm not mad at anyone that doesn't have a DJ, but I think there's levels to it. And like you said, sometimes it's hard to have the right people involved. Um, and if they're not there for making your beats or you're not, you know, in your crew, then for a good DJ, you're probably going to have to pay. And for a lot of those shows, it's probably not going to be worth it. So yeah. it's a vicious circle again is right. not mad at anyone that doesn't have a DJ, but I think if you can and you can get a good DJ, you always should. But yeah. I'm biased. Obviously, I'm biased. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of levels, can you both talk about your roles as DJs at a festival? versus a commercial club or an underground venue or, or whatever set you might be asked to DJ at. And being able to do something unique every time, being able to go above another level every single time you do a set, how do you know when to break out of one skill and when to fall back on another? How do you know when to be a certain version of yourself and when to be another version of yourself? Okay, I mean, I've, I've got um, a pretty all-encompassing one answer for that. And it's just experience. So when I started DJing, I was I was the first on the flyer. I had the opening three hours with no one turned up apart from the last half an hour. You know, so you you're playing to empty dance floors and you're filling dance floors with people. You're having to learn how to read people that come in, how to encourage them to come out onto the dance floor and to vibe, even though it's not a packed dance floor already. And I think it's that old adage is again, like, like the dusty old man thing, but it's, it's learning the hard way and the right way right. Yeah. and learning how to read crowds. Um, I think that's something a lot of young DJs don't get a chance to do in those kind of harsher environments, if you will. Um, Cause to me, there's nothing easier than jumping on onto, onto the decks in a festival or a party. Everything's already bumping yeah dj before you has done a like absolutely smashed it everyone is vibing you jump on all you got to do is not mess up for an hour uh, do you know what i mean and you can get away <laughs> with that and you can absolutely smash it um so to me there's kind of nothing easier than doing that but to have a whole club night where you you start at 8 p.m and there's no one dancing everyone's sitting around chilling mm. and you've got to build the whole vibe of the night 
you've got to you know encourage that dance floor encourage people into the venue encourage people to stay keep the vibe moving like keep everyone happy and then kind of tone it down towards the end of the night and allow for that flow of people in and out that so there's going to be a natural evolution of the type of people in there so the genres are going to constantly change yeah and i think for me that's i find a lot of fun in that in those longer sets because you just have a lot more freedom and you can try things that you can't necessarily try in that that hour slot you get when it's packed and you just have to kind of go out and smash out some bangers and, and keep the energy up so i think that flow is is where i really find the fun but for me the main thing is the experience and learning how to read crowds yeah so you would like um my thing is is um i used to i used to really like uh, you know if i was djing somewhere and it was just a normal commercial you know uh venue you know like it's just an you know your everyday nightclub i kind of like I used to hate going to work and that's crazy to say as a DJ. I mean, I was getting paid to play music, but I just realized in certain places I would be like shackled. I'd have to, you know, I'd have to play certain amount of, you know, uh, songs that are in the charts or whatever. And I'm not one of them. That's elitist. If good music is good music, it doesn't matter. But you just know them certain venues where you're like, I'm not going to get away with anything tonight. I can probably, you know, squeeze in a couple of tracks there that I think are really good. But other than that, I kind of got to stick to some sort of, you know, commercial vibe. And uh, yeah, yeah, I used to really, I, I just didn't look forward to going and uh, and doing it um, until, you know, it's uh, finding a venue, finding a venue that is a bit more open format and a bit more, you know, um, experimental and they just give you the reins, you know? So um, I, I played in a like 200 club in Newport. Um, it was kind of like a rock club, but um, the 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 guy who run it was uh, somebody from Newport whose grandfather had TJs. He he was the owner of TJs, um, Socolo, um, Johnny Socolo. Um, it was his nephew, so he was just like, "Play what you want, I don't care." And I was like, Are "You sure?" <laughs> and I was like, "So I've got all these tracks in my head that I thought I wanted to play, but um." It was more of a metal crowd, I'd say, and a more of alternative crowd. But I love that. That that kind of gave me some sort of, as like now you're gonna earn your your, your crust, you know, and you're gonna show your mir- minerals how you're gonna mm-hmm. mix some of this stuff in. You know, I, I I knew enough just to get by the first few weeks, but then when people were coming up asking requests, it, it really, you know, hit home. You don't know as much rock as you think you do, you know, or as much metal as you think you do. And uh, just, yeah, some other random requests I would have regular and I'd just be locking these in my brain, you know, as I'm doing it and then writing it in my phone. And then I would go home then and start practicing little sets with, you know, more more alternative music mixed in with hip hop and things. So that kind of pushed me. And it, again, just going back to the thing that you never, you're never a finished product because I thought I was at the, the a point where I'm like, yeah, I can rock any crowd now. And I was like, no, you can't. Because they've just asked you for 10, 15 tracks in an hour and you don't know one of them, you know. So um, yeah, and the and the payoff then of just um of you know putting my mind to it and just it's you've just got another skill set then. You know, it's like you're adding stuff, you're adding stuff to your skill set constantly. So yeah, that was that was a, a major thing for me because at you know, a few points where I was doing just, you know, your everyday clubs, I really didn't enjoy it. And I didn't actively 
go out to to do it either as a job you know i would do certain certain events myself you know we we put on our own events so i knew it was hip-hop and this and that but um a lot of the times i used to get like tagged and and somebody would give uh, a club owner my number and they'd ring up and i'd know within two or three minutes oh, i don't want to do this <laughs> which is probably the worst thing i could have done because you know it was turning your nose up at money but um i just yeah. really didn't enjoy it and to be honest there's a there's a there's a part of me that thinks I just wasn't ready for it or I wasn't good enough, you know, at the time to to do them things that Ricardo said, like read a completely different crowd. I think there's a little bit of me that probably thought, nah, you're not there yet. You know, it was a bit of a realisation. But um, yeah, I suppose it's just finding other clubs and other venues and, and owners and promoters that are a bit more, you know, open to, to different types of music that made me then, you know, get back in my head back in it type of thing. Do you have a favorite hold up night DJing? Um, oh, there's been a few. Um, I'd say my favorite hold up event was um was when we had Philly and Dots, um because that we booked we booked Philly and Dots to come uh, to the Moon Club. I think their set started at like half ten or something, but it was part of a I think called Hub Fest. Um, so we kind of had the the alley in uh, Womanby Street. We we kind of had the whole alley, so we had a, like uh, the the turntable set up, and we just had a great vibe of people there um, all day. And there was like a lot of um, tourists there as well who just walked past and they heard the music. I think there might have even been like a rugby game on or something. Um, and they just yeah, everyone started kind of flocking into Womanby Street, and uh, Philly and Dots had arrived there a bit earlier. So um yeah we put on some instrumentals and they just started freestyling and it was just it was one of the best vibes I can can uh, remember and there was people walking past and um I think it was I think it was uh, Philly I think it was Philly some guy had was like walking past some like uh, an older gentleman and he says something like uh, something geezer big up to the people over there and big up to the old geezer and this guy's just like walk fast and he's basically laughing and he's giving him a high five and I was like oh it was a cool little moment and it was yeah it was just a really good vibe and yeah because I was I, hip-hop always used to have this thing of you know um it's, it still has it now with people thinking it's like an aggressive um you know art form of music and you know they're going to turn up at the nights and there's going to be violence and everything and I used to be part of a club in Newport called, uh, well, it was Newport Snooker Centre, and it was like they'd done specifically garage nights, and I've never seen so much violence in the in the 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 four or five months that we run those nights. It was just a crazy amount of violence from these these nights, and I was like, you know, you go to a hip hop night, we got break dancers here, we got people vibing, and that's what hip hop is. I don't know what type of thing these people had in their head, so. That night of doing the the Philly and Dots night when we were outside in Womanby Street, out in the open, you know, there was kids, women there, and they 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 all, you know, felt safe. And they, they kind of, I think it opened their eyes as well to what hip-hop can be. So that was probably my favourite one. Did you have, um? sorry, I was going to say, did you did you have DJs all day on that day? I think you, I think I stopped by that day. Yeah, we had, um, we had, uh, it was myself, uh, DJ Oracom, who's uh, back in Poland at the moment. Uh, DJ Jaffa, of course, turned up. Uh, DJ Brave Toaster, I think, was there. Rest in nice. peace. Um, yeah, I think a few more people turned up, and it was basically we had DJs from, I think it was like twelve o'clock in the afternoon. We we set up, 
Yeah, I'm sure I, I stopped by because I was doing something in town and I just heard like music coming from a couple of streets away and stopped by. And yeah. I remember that day I was like, oh, wow, what's going on? This is this is absolutely dope. Yeah, yeah the whole I mean, of Womanby Street was packed. It was vibes. Yeah, it built as well through the day. It just built steadily. And the, the my favorite thing was like seeing people who were there from like one o'clock in the afternoon. And then I like, seeing them at 10 still there. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we're doing something right. Probably. It's keeping people there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So getting back to a word you mentioned a couple of moments ago, Comfort, you mentioned the word flow. Can you give me a recent example of capitalizing on that space to dazzle with a display that might be different for yourself? Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, I think I get, I, I feel very lucky that I get to DJ full time for a living. Um, uh, and like you said, I think when I first stepped into some commercial clubs, I didn't feel ready um but because of the amount of time i've spent doing it and the amount of times i've been humbled in clubs now um i've i've got a certain confidence in in what i bring to most clubs um but i think when you get those longer sets there's always a period of a, an hour or two uh usually from like midnight you know around midnight to 1 a.m 2 a.m that period of the night where the energy really picks up um and you can really try new stuff um and i think if you're mixing songs that people don't know with the songs that they can sing along to and those mashups and those bootlegs I've, i'm a sucker for a bootleg <laughs> so if i can bring out a bootleg that i've made no one's heard yet and it's got maybe a, a new uh like an instrumental of a, of a new song people won't really know too much of but the vocal of something they can sing along to and you can mash a, you know, maybe do a little juggle with something like that. And you get people singing along to something they would never have heard before. Yeah. That for me is a, that's when I think like, yeah, okay, this is, this is me at my peak. This is me nailing it. I'm getting the feedback from the crowd. Everyone's vibing. It's something that, you know, not that I've created from scratch, but it's, it's the elements of being a DJ and taking the different vocals, the different beats, putting different things together. And then it's even producing as that. well, isn't it? You know, with the, yeah. the stuff like that is basically you're producing as well, you know, at the same time. Yeah, it's just it's taking all those little elements and just creating something new out of something that's already yeah. there. Um, and when you can do that and get like great feedback from a crowd that's vibing, um, I think especially in those more commercial spaces where you yeah. find those little pockets of people who will vibe to stuff you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah. Um, that's that's where I really feel like you hit that flow. And I, like for me, that's when I feel like, yeah, this is this is me as, a, as a, my peak of doing what I'm trying to do. That element of surprise. Yeah, yeah, it's some, something new. Was it? Was that saying something new, something old, something borrowed, something yeah. blue? Yeah, a bit of everything, but just in one nice little musical pastry. <laughs> do you have a clash between personal artistic distinction and mainstream expectations from audiences that might not understand DJing on a level that you do? All the time. <laughs> um <laughs> like un honestly but i mean I i've got two minds on this like yeah there's is my ego and my pride it's kind of as, a, as like my own artistic i'm a dj this is what i do i bring something like trust me to bring what i'm bringing everyone's vibing stop putting your phone up in my face saying play bad bunny <laughs> you, you know what i mean i mean or like play abba that's the worst one like play Ugh. play dancing queen like i'm going to at some point let's be honest i've got i'm here for six hours i'm not going to get away with not playing it at some point Jeez, <laughs> come on you don't need to remind me um 
but then equally music is subjective um popular music is popular for whatever reason it's popular but it's popular yeah um so yeah, and if that's what 90 percent of a room want and i'm being paid to play the music that that room wants i mean i'd be a, i'd be a chump to not play it do you know of what course. i mean yeah. um and that's where i think for me i i don't think i would be able to do the commercial dj i'm doing with as much enjoyment and fulfillment as i am if i hadn't done everything i'd done with astro boys beforehand um because if you had asked me when i was doing that stuff with astro boys oh uh, would you go and play in commercial club and play the music that you like like eugene says is it's not necessarily stuff you'd, you'd listen to yourself or, or really want to be playing all the time i'd be like hell no no way never catch me doing that sort of stuff <laughs> and now you ask me now and i'm like yeah how, like, where how much yeah um <laughs> Um, but I think again, it, it's that evolution of experiences and, and things I did and the times I had with the boys that's allowed me to grow into this different position with DJing. Um, and now my life revolves around DJing and although it is work in extent, like I, even if I'm not necessarily playing all the music I want to be playing, I'm doing it in my own way. I'm yeah. having fun with it and. I'm still learning and it's like, I get to practice as a job. Yeah. I get to practice something I love doing and get paid to do it. What a great spot to be in. Eh? Like, yeah. If that's my biggest complaint, like, like first world issues, do you know what I mean? Mm. So yeah, I, I kind of have that battle all the time, but like, I think I ever got to a position where I was questioning it to the point where like, right. I don't like any of the music I'm playing. What am I doing? Then I'd probably stop doing a lot of the commercial stuff that I am, but I'm very lucky in the venues that I am in that they trust me to let me do my thing. Yeah. And I like 90 to 95% of the music I play, I absolutely with my whole heart love. Um, so I, I, I find myself in super lucky spots. Um, and I think job satisfaction is like at the forefront of my mind, especially with DJing, because I never want it to become something I despise yeah. and do just for money, because that's never what I got into it for. I never expected it to become that. So as long as I'm having fun with it, I'll play as much Justin Bieber as you want. I I think, you know, Ricardo's a lot more um, qualified to speak, you know, on current type of, um, you know, DJing in clubs and stuff, because I just haven't done it in a long while. Um, it's mainly been just because of... Um, just being immersed in the, the the hold up stuff, you know. Um, so like on the other end of that, you know, we get to um teach kids how to DJ and stuff like that, you know. And and I'm I'm aware as well then of you know I need to keep them interested. So it's the same, the same thing as Ricardo saying there. You know, you're a chump if you turn up and be like, well, I don't like any of this, and I'm playing what I want to play. Well, you just won't get paid then, you know. If I'm if I'm running a club. And I know ninety percent of my patrons are going there, want to listen to, you know, the more commercial stuff. I'm not hiring a DJ that's going to get funny about playing that type of music. That's crazy, you know. You're there to you're there to run a successful business, so you've got to keep people interested. Um, yeah. So it's kind of the same thing as when we're when we're doing these uh DJ courses with the kids. I'm not going to throw on you know eighties and nineties hip hop that just totally alienates them. So you kind of um. Yeah, you've got to keep them interested with some of the the current music and uh stuff like that, and it 
it, it, everything, I think everything in life is a balancing act, isn't it? Between something that you want to do and something, you know, that you need to do. I mean, we, we'd all love to just do something we, we love 24 seven and get paid big bucks for it. But unfortunately it just doesn't work like that. So, but I think if you like, it sounds like Ricardo's just found that really nice balance of, of work and, and, um, Sweet spot. and enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like I, I find the challenge as well in every set to, you know, maybe bring music that people won't know, but will enjoy yeah. in that environment. And yeah. like, it's it, to me, it's still the job of a DJ to educate yeah. and to bring music to people they wouldn't have heard. Yeah. And that, I, that in itself is like a challenge that I love in those environments. Yeah. And you know what, saying you saying that then just reminded me of just sometimes I've had to snap myself out of it when I'm kind of there and I'm like, oh, God, you know, i got to play this. And I'm like, well, do something, you know, do something different. You know, Try and introduce them. This is because you kind of lose the thing of a DJ as a selector. You know, you're supposed to introduce people to new music and it may not be as prevalent anymore, but it's as prevalent as you want it to be, you know. So if you, you know, challenge yourself at that moment, okay, I'm, you know, I'm playing the, the, the songs that everyone hears a million times a day, let's, chuck something else in there let's see if i can blend that in with this and yeah introduce people to, to music they might not have you know so i think yeah trying to use it as a catalyst of just waking myself up sometimes because i'm like you know you just get into the habit of yeah okay next song and and i'm like this is not what they're paying you for you know i've got to look interested you know and i've got to interest myself type of thing and i think that's a skill in itself you know i feel like you're forever a student if you love DJing and you you really love the intricacies of DJing, I feel I think you forever feel like a student. Yeah, like I I easily know more now than I ever have about DJing, but I also know there's so much that I don't know. There's more now that I don't know than I ever didn't know. I didn't know before. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. it's crazy. It's it like makes the more, complete sense. The more you learn, the more there is to learn. Yeah. Um, yeah. and that's like the beauty in it. There's no there's no end point to it. Like. Like you see the best DJs in the world, like Cubert, like and they're still learning and evolving and doing all these crazy these things. So it's just, just awe inspiring. Like yeah, to like and it sounds really cheesy, but I kind of take that then throughout like everything else in my life is like well, there's no end goal. Like you can improve everything all the time. Like everything is just kind of what you make of it. So that's kind of what I love about it. Yeah, that's he's just wrapped it up perfectly. That's I think any DJ you know who who like say who loves music and takes it seriously thinks that way i don't i i really don't i don't know I, i've read somewhere you know before you know when you had this superstar dj thing and djs were getting a bad rap or bad rep um but every dj i know are just they're just so so heavily into music and always open to learning and if they see another dj killing it you know they they're they're behind them. They're giving them the props, and I don't like. Away from a competitive environment, like something like a DMC thing, when you're talking about like rocking clubs and and you know rocking a crowd and stuff like that, I think DJs, you know, they'll give each other props, and I love seeing another DJ, you know, really get the crowd going. It's not something that I would look at and be like, oh, you know, I wish I was that good, or or feel any sort of. Um, in a way about it and feel a bit jealous or anything it's 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 a, it's an inspiration constantly i think and i think dj's for the most part all think like that as well
making this since you silly bitch been sporting them shitty grits from spitting jams with a list of ripping shows with black twang and it's still progressing many lessons learned from all the influence shops to the shark always jammer jam those funky tunes for ages Harrison the ledge the man the gun KST and all still rolling with me the plan keep me keeping it going and give much love to Red Dragon Gang Squid Ninjas still meaning business this is my South Wales state of mind memorized by the sway of your girls behind and I'm feeling fine in years time I'm still broke but guaranteed still this happy Dunny and family for life but never forget H-A-P to the R-D-N-I-C-K-O-B and so you people jump up This is DJ Paul B. Um, so going back, I'd say then about I was 16. I know I was 16, so it's a long time ago. Um, I got I was it was my first after my first year of work. I had a I was I had a tax rebate, so I went and bought my first tech Technics and mixer, um, and I was balls deep in it by then. You know, I was I was living breathing it. Um, years of practice though, you know, before playing out and that, but then. You know, with Jaffa's help and his mentoring and his patience, above all, um, we're doing some regular gigs. Because I was like, we, you know, we were a team at this point. We were like Batman and Robin. We used to do residency at Bulletproof, which we held for years doing the hip hop. It was a drum and bass night, but we held the, the upstairs room, which I think it was somewhere between like five and ten years that ran. And we were there every Saturday, you know, or Friday or Saturday, I can't remember. But, you know, that was upstairs at the Emporium and that was Vibes. Then we had like residencies in Buffalo, you know, um, Maloko, Higher Learning. Um, we've done plenty of showcases in Higher Learning, like with Rounder and that. Where that's kind of where Bronx River really forged, and and that's where I really, really kind of got into it, you know, because I I got of I kind of got over my nerves about playing out. I was confident, and then things just just improved from there on. Um, then off the back of that, then I got work with um, me one. I done some sessions with up in London. We done a, a live TV show on Sky for Trevor Nelson, which was just me one myself and an acoustic guitarist. This was in Bagley's uh, nightclub in in Kings Cross, and then on the other stage was Kalise, and on the other stage was the Artful Dodger with an eighteen piece orchestra, um, and Michelle Gales with us. Um, Hattie from EastEnders, which was crazy because we were in the in the caravan before we had to go in watching a crazy episode of EastEnders with Hattie sat next to me, like barging me in the ribs and that, going, what? <laughs> um, anyway, um, yeah, so I'd done that session, which was crazy. Got picked up in a limo from Paddington, taken straight to a professional studio. I had breakfast with Roachford. Don't know if you remember Roachford, but that was a you know a bit of a deal because he was quite big in the 80s. Um yeah. So, you know, that was my first step into business type, you know, the, the industry where everything had to be bang on, perfect. You rehearsed, you know, it was serious. Uh, things were still improving for me. I was more dedicated than ever. Um, then some session work then with um, well-speaking rappers. I mean, I didn't know a word that they were saying, but then uh, there was a big, like, we'd done a, a session in John Peel's studio in Maida Vale, BBC. Uh, which was epic to be in his studio. You know, they had a big picture of John Peel behind his mixing desk in the booth and that. We were in there for the whole day. That was crazy. Um, then I'd done work with, like, uh, one of the rappers from Tistion, um, Kravos, 
and another Welsh-speaking rapper called, and they were both called Loka Slafer. Um, we'd done lots of radio work with that, done videos, lots of TV work with them. Uh, the Ice Deadford got paid great money for that shit, I tell you. Um, then, then I kind of, you know, the residencies continued, and I, I was peaking at this point, like. I mean, I was confident. I had my skills down. You know, I was my my fingers and that were just like it was all connecting. Everything was connecting. The cuts were on point. I was really confident. I had no nerves. I was, you know, I was buzzing. And then I hooked up with Associated Minds, um, Maya, Mudmouth, Ralph Ripshit, Rough Styles. Um, then we done some some. You know, we supported Cool Keith, which was probably a highlight of everything for me. That was, the dude's crazy. That was just epic. Um, we done a tour of Ireland. Um, got put up in swanky hotels, and I went to some dodgy places, some IRA places and shit. It was that was crazy. Um, yeah, we done a tour over there. That was that was great. Again, everything was just building. Um, and then I kind of sort of I was I was DJing in clubs in Cardiff City, and it kind of took the love away for me. You know, it, it became work. Um, I bowed out of AM because I, I sort of met my missus and I was settling down and then one thing led to another. I still got the love for it, though. I still got the love for it. I mean, I, like I said, I played played a set with Jaffa, well, a couple of sets with Jaffa at my mate's memorial party a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I was nervous, but it was like riding a bike once I got into it, once I conquered the nerves again. Kind of gave me a taste and I kind of, you know, I'm going to go around Jaffa's and book up and practice a bit more. With a with a sight to maybe doing the odd thing here and there. That's another thing too. Like when I was with AM, we released the the Sneaker Freaks mixtape, which I did, which because I'm I'm mad on my kicks. Um, and it was in three parts. The whole premise of this mixtape was basically to do like a pirate radio show, and it was in three parts. And I had all skits off rappers, um, all shit like that. I, I made a produced a, a, a wicked intro. I'd love a copy of that CD again. Um, but it was like an old school mix with all like early eighties, nineties. Then it was the what was it? It was the Shelto. That was the old school one. Then the Air Force one, which was like your current, and then the the Air Max mix. I I think that's what they were called. Which was what I liked: the real left to center boom bap, East Coast dirty underground hip hop. Right. Um, and that that I would say was when I was absolutely peeking on the turntables you know i was i was everything was like i was like a robot um but yeah in a nutshell that's me my name is dj cuz uh although most people call me marcus um yeah i've got into hip-hop at a, a very young age and i think i got my first turntable uh technics sl 1200 when i was about 13 or 14 years old and um I was just uh, addicted to the whole hip hop thing um, in terms of uh, the uh, the music, the graffiti writing, uh, the break dancing, the whole the whole culture uh, captured me at a young age. And um, I started off listening to electro music uh, in the early days, and then went on to the uh, which developed then into the, the classics, the Run DMC and the, the Schoolie D and and so on and so forth. And um, I, I was just hooked by the whole 
a turntable scratching thing to begin with. Um, and I remember I had a, one of my early mixers was a, uh, a, a cam mixer, I think. And it had, it had like an 8-bit, five-second sampler built into it, just a button you'd punch. So um, what, what, what that uh, allowed me to do was I could loop a couple of seconds of a, a record that was playing on a turntable, um, and then that freed up the turntable to scratch over the tops. Uh, so it's very, very basic, and there was no editing facilities or anything like that. It was a case of um, you had to get your timing right. But um, what that did was made me uh, view the turntable as a, a musical instrument from a from a young age, as opposed to just being a record player. Um, yeah, and that's where it all started for me, really. And uh, I, uh, I became addicted to to digging vinyl, going to all the all the record shops, finding the uh, the breaks and samples that people like Public Enemy used, and you know, digging out the, the meters and James Brown and and things like that. And um, yeah, that's what that's where it all started for me to begin with. Later, then um, I I started working out. Um, I didn't have much in, in the way of equipment, just this mixer and, and my turntable. So I'd, I'd have a, a, a stash of records and samples that I'd collected. So I'd try and work out in my head and with the use of this five-second sampler. Um, i try and make beats, basically, um, at home. And, yeah, that's, that was my uh, start into the whole beat-making. You catch footage of of uh, Run DMC on stage and Jam Master J controlling everything behind the turntables. That was a, a big uh, influence. Um, people like Jazzy Jeff as well. Um, but, but but don't forget this this was pre pre internet, um, and I was living in, in in South Wales, so I didn't have any kind of access to any kind of tutorials. As far as I, I'm aware. Uh, 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 video t- tutorials didn't exist back then, so you'd literally have cassette tapes or records of these these songs that you'd you'd love and, you, and you'd know every every second of them. But you, you 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 didn't really have the the visual to see how they were making all these scratching noises and, right. and sounds, you know. So you just kind of had to make it up yourself and what you uh, uh, imitate what you thought was going on, basically. What sort of year was that? Oh, what was that? That that would have been. Um, uh, that would have been late eighties, uh, going into the early nineties. Then I suppose, right off the top of my head. So then um, I was in a, a college. I was in the same college as um, as uh, Matt. Uh, uh, goes by the name of Junior Dispro. So I met Matt um, in early nineties in college, and he handed me a, a cassette tape. Um, he, he explained he was a. He was an MC. He'd, he'd, he'd done some bits and pieces, and he handed me a cassette tape. I think it was circa '75, if I remember rightly. And uh, yeah, I went back home, played that, and I thought, yeah, this is this is brilliant. So uh, yeah, I wanted to um, want to pursue the uh, the production a bit more. Then, so um, I started looking for uh, a studio where I could kind of I had all these ideas and these. Um, uh, uh, drafts that I'd made at, at home, my little mixer, and also on a like a twin cassette deck. You do pause mixing back then, mm. um, so you kind of it, it, making loops essentially. 
from from other bits of music. Um, but I had bigger ideas. So I found a, a studio in Cardiff, the only one I could afford at the time in, in Cardiff City Centre called Grassroots. So I hired that out and I just I would just rock up with um, um my records for you know full of samples and breaks that, that I, I thought and hoped would fit together and just uh, started learning how to how to chop and slice in the in the studio. Um so I would make these little beats and I remember I gave um I gave Matt uh, uh, a tape of these beats and and he, he loved them and he was like, yeah, I, I want to do something over this. So um, Matt came into the studio and um, we recorded a couple of uh, tracks with uh, Matt, who I think he went by the name of the F back then, e- EHF. Extra potential. Extra, 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 extra potential. Extra potential. Extra potential. few songs together and um at the time i remember matt was working he was in the middle of a uh, a project with a couple of guys from scotland and um he played these guys the uh, uh some of my beats and yeah they 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 uh they asked me to join the project so i jumped on board so there's four of us and we made a, a an album on cassette um which is titled the f underground pressure and it was a cassette-only release, um, and that was my first, my first release really, in uh, in hip hop. What are your strongest memories of those sessions? Are there any standout memories for you that kind of linked into you growing as a producer after your DJing? Of course, what do you remember most about those sessions? Yeah, it was an exciting time just being able to to, to go into a, a a proper studio and come out with a track. I could I could play to people and play it in the car, and yeah, it, it, it was exciting. I uh, all self taught, didn't didn't know what I was doing at the time. They, like I say, there was no no internet, no YouTube tutorials. Right. You're just doing what you thought was right at the time. Um, so so after that uh, uh, that cassette release, I started doing a couple more tracks with uh, with Matt, and uh, my production was getting a, a bit better, uh, and. Um, yeah, but we didn't really do anything with those uh, with those tracks, and it was during that time that uh, I'd met uh, Knobs the Nuts, the the fantastic Knobs the Nuts from Headcase Lads, 
I was in a, I was in a studio session with Matt, and um, uh, Matt was a, a friend of uh, Nobster and uh, Slice from Headcase at the time, and uh, Nobster turned up to a studio session, and uh, yeah, just this energetic, hilarious character. Um, <laughs> Welsh MC, the first the first time I'd ever heard somebody with a a full on full on Welsh accent, um, MCing very very well uh, with his own unique style. Um, it was yeah. Um, We're talking about somebody who was unapologetically Welsh, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, anyone who who knows knobs uh, uh, the nuts from back then will know he was yeah he. He was the the life and soul when he walked into a uh, to a hip hop event. He, yeah, he, I mean, he, it, it, it was it was refreshing because what Lobster was doing was a that was a language uh, and a sense of humour that I was very familiar with, um, but I hadn't heard it uh, done like that before on a mm. o, 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 over slices production, which was um, again, I, I mean, it, it had a foundation in my opinion of. Uh, th- th- there was elements of the early Britcore UK uh, rawness there, um, but with the the um, the wonkiness of the, the headcase lads and what they brought together, the dynamic between Slice and Nobster was was crazy. It was uh, it was hilarious to watch, and but they, they just did yeah. They, they, it was magic what they were making, and uh, it really really pushed boundaries and. You know, you know, a, a lot of people couldn't, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't believe what they were hearing. I think some of them, but they, uh, it was hard for some people to grasp. You either, it's a bit Marmite, you either loved or you, or you hated it. And yeah, they, they were unapologetic and they were a case of, it was a case of, this is what we do. It's our, it's, it's how hip hop should be done. In, in my opinion, mm. it was their flavor. It was, uh, their creativity and, you know, get on board or don't, it does it, it, it really didn't matter. Um, they were just doing it for the love and and to be creative. In terms of yourself doing it for the love and being creative, what would have been the turning point and the moment that you felt comfort as a producer? Is there a moment you can speak to that really speaks to that confidence within your ability as a producer back then? Um, back then, I was still learning, to be honest. I'm st- I mean, I, I mean I, you never stop learning. Um, right. Uh, back then, it, 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 it was just the, the excitement of, of, of finding these little uh, samples and, uh, and breaks, and, and and just working out what you know what you could possibly do with it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I developed more over the last. I mean, I still make music to this day, and I've developed a, a lot more over the last fifteen years. I used to do a, a you know the, the odd club back in the uh, uh, early nineties. The, the odd people would get me into the odd hip hop set now and again, and I plenty of house parties and things like that. Just early, early DJing. Um, but DJ sets were never really my my forte in the uh, in the typical sense because I always wanted to scratch, and um, I just, yeah I, I would. Um, whatever set I was doing, I'd always find time to, to, to get some cuts in there. Um, but as we started doing the uh, production and the music and making records and things like that, uh, we started getting a, a bit of a wider audience and we'd be invited to do more live gigs. 
where uh, the whole turntablism uh, thing started be- becoming more apparent, and we had more freedom to go to actually go on stage, and the DJ was kind of member of a band um, where you could you know flex your skills or just just come up with w- weird and wonderful creative. Uh, 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 scratch sets just to make people laugh really comedy was a big part of it back then and just having fun uh, and enjoying it so um, yeah although although I I, I rocked many parties um, I never really saw myself as the normal um, party rocking DJ I was uh, more of a a a turntablist a a hip-hop scratch DJ and I just used to enjoy creating little mini quirky sets uh, to entertain entertain crowds, really. What would have been some of those techniques you were using that were ahead of the curve and different from anybody else back then at that time? Well, I just, I think not having any fear, really, and just having, um, uh, just coming up, instead of, you know, a lot of DJs playing club nights and they were asked to just, you know, play sets, whereas I would get up, I'd, I don't know, I'd, I'd be scratching Dion Warwick over the incredible bongo band and mm. just, you know, anything, anything, uh, uh, weird and wonderful. And, and like I say, comedy, anything that could be entertaining. And uh, well, well I, I thought it was comedy and, and, uh, you know, so, so my, <laughs> my friends inside me every now and again, a few people would, uh, <laughs> wouldn't be too happy maybe if they were expecting the, uh, a, a normal, uh, quote unquote yeah. DJ set, you know, um, but it was just bringing something different and trying to be creative and push boundaries. It was always about pushing boundaries. At the end of the day, um, you, you know, you, you had uh, you had uh, DJs like Jaffa in, in, up in St. Melons, uh, and you had uh, a, a few other people around that were that were doing their their thing. Um, but at the end of the day, we were we were all uh, from South Wales, and we're doing hip hop music. Um, so you, in, in my opinion, the only way to do it was to just be as creative as possible and try and push boundaries and enjoy yourself. You're also, by this point, you're a member of the Bronx River DJs. Where do you think your curatorial practice as a DJ started and ended between Jaffa and Paul B? What do you think it was that you brought specifically to the tables as a member of that collective? Oh, well, I think... Um... Well, I, I met Jaffa. Um, when, when did I meet Jaffa? That must have been early 90s. I met Jaffa when he was actually working in a record store in Castle Arcade in Cardiff. And I was uh, going in to check on sales of the, the underground pressure tape. And Jaffa was working, I think he, he worked on Saturdays or something there. And um, yeah, he'd actually uh, taken this tape home. And I uh, had a listen, and, and when I went in uh, to check on it, uh, any sales and so on, you know, he, he was digging what, what we were doing, and, yeah, we became friends after that. And um, so I'd go up to Jaffa's place in St. Melons and just hang out and go through samples and things like that, and vice versa. Jaffa would come down to uh, uh, my flat in in Poncana at the time. And we'd all just hang out. The same, the same with um, uh, uh, the head case lads and and uh, Shonky and all those guys after a studio session it kind of like come back to my flat and everyone just have a have a bit of a chill out and and, and listen to the, the tunes we did that day and so on so I was already doing bits and pieces 
uh, with, with Jaffa in terms of uh, the same nights we'd both be DJing at and yeah, just 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 hanging out and just playing each other uh, hip hop beats we'd done and things like that. Um, yeah, and I met Paul B then through Jaffa. So I, I can't remember exactly, but um, uh, Paul was a friend of Jaffa's, and around about. Oh, I'm not. I'm not going to be very good with year, year, the year here. <laughs> but uh, the late nineties, Jaffa was working on um, an album of of his that he pressed on uh, or released on CD, and I think he had one final track left to do, and he wanted it to be a, a, a turntable track. Um, so, I mean, I, if I remember right, I think that's how it started. Anyway, so the Bronx River DJs thing. So um, Jaffa. Uh, asked myself and Paul to, to jump on this track and called it Bronx River DJ, DJs. And um, yeah, I remember Jaffa did a, a, an album launch party, uh, which was which is a, a killer show in um, the old Toucan Club or one of the old Toucan Clubs nice. in Cardiff. And uh, yeah, that, that was a, a jam-packed event. But the way Jaffa had structured the night uh, for the event it was like an old block party um you had uh, the the bronx river djs there myself paul and jaffa but they also had a live band that would come in and do a track um then you'd have mcs jumping on and you kind of the whole set flowed but it, it was a very entertaining and very well structured uh, uh set and it went down a treat and, uh, yeah yeah it was, it was it was a good night and oh, also the uh, the owner of the uh the Tootin club as well simon um he was very supportive in uh, the early Welsh hip hop acts. Um, he always uh, uh, put us on in his in the Tootin Club and in their many venues. Yeah. What do you think is the legacy of that era, and what you were doing to preserve the culture back then? Um. Well, myself, I, I, I can only speak for myself, really. Of but course. the uh, the uh, I mean. Oh, answer to that I, I suppose just pushing boundaries um trying to entertain people give give them their money's worth um and yeah just scratch <laughs> just lots of scratching whether they, whether they wanted it or not really um but 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 we, we were we were very very fortunate my um i mean you had my, myself jaffa paul um optimus prime those guys um r.i.p to, to to rob stag um, so you had you had Rob, um, uh, Monkey, and Paul. I mean, those guys were fantastic, but they were uh, three turntablists that were just we were on the same circuit, basically playing the same nights. And they they they, they were very talented, very creative people as well. Um, yeah, and and you had a, a, a slice and the guys in Swansea doing their thing. Mm. But we, we're we, we're very fortunate that we got some great opportunities with the with the Welsh uh, the, the Welsh media. We got to, to, to do some shows on the Pop Factory. Um, we had some great support by um, uh, some older Welsh hip hop, uh, sorry Welsh music legends, people like uh, Chrissy Jenkins. Um, he's always very encouraging and. When he wasn't doing work with the, the super furry animals or, or um, uh, uh, bench, or, or he was doing his own hip hop thing as well. But he was always very supportive, and the same with um, uh, uh, Luba Slydog, uh, uh, John Griff, and Kevs. They were, you know, le legendary experimental uh, uh, electronic musicians yeah. from Wales, and they loved the whole Welsh hip hop thing. And um, 
Yeah, they were they, they were all very encouraging, gave us a lot of su- support. And then we had people like John Lenny, who was doing the um, BBC Wales radio show. He invited us on the show for a, a couple of times. Um, we had uh, John Ray, uh, a brilliant Welsh composer, um, who had, a, a, I think it was an hour-long show. It was like a film score, really, on um, on S4C. And myself and Jaffa worked on that, along with some members of the Welsh Welsh Orchestra. Um, so so it, it opened doors, and, and, and I feel very grateful and, and, and privileged that I, that I got to do these kinds of things. Um, uh, and yeah, it was an eye opener, and yeah, it was a, a, a great time, an exciting time, a very creative time. And yeah, yeah brilliant. You mentioned higher learning a couple of minutes ago. Was there a specific moment where you realized you needed to start shifting your focus away from doing more shows and start doing more production? The, the thing about about the late the, the late nineties is that um, we were putting on. Oh, sorry, no, not we, but the, there were regular events going on in Cardiff, hip hop events that were getting big acts in, you know, American acts and things like that. But they just weren't putting any local acts on as support, um, and that, that was a, an opportunity missed, in my opinion, because uh, uh, you know it would have been great for for the local Welsh acts to, uh, to have gone and performed with, you know, some of their their, their musical heroes, really, you know, that were that were passing through Cardiff. Um, but but as a result, um, uh, people like Dregs and Captain uh, and Rough Styles they started uh, putting on the, the higher learning nights mm-hmm. where they would they would get these uh, more underground hip hop acts in from uh, you know London or or, or whatever and um, but they would put the local acts on as support and things like that um, and they were they were they were great nights um, and that would have been coming up to the late nineties around about two thousand um, I think thereabouts. Um, and I, yeah, uh, I think I stepped off from the live music scene around about 2000, 2001, just, uh, other, I had other priorities and, um, yeah, it kind of went on the back burner and, um, yeah, I took a bit of a break for a while. Um, and I, I that was the, I, th- I think, I think the last, the last piece of music I, I, I I went down and I did in the studio was for uh, was for Blade. Really? So, uh, yeah, I, I think it was. I did a, a couple of tracks for uh, uh, Blade. I think one of them was on his album Storms of Brewing. Uh, I did some scratching uh, on, on 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 a couple of tracks for him. Yeah, and I think one. one I don't think one ever got released. Um, but that was the last. Uh, I think that was the last release that I was on. So my name is Blade. Uh, I am a hip hop artist, uh, MC, producer, retired. Uh, been doing hip hop pretty much all my life since my early days, uh, before I was even a teenager, and in some way always been there with hip hop. Um, dabbled in everything, graffiti, DJing, beatboxing, a lot. Um, but obviously I stuck with production, beatboxing, and rapping. And um, the beatboxing kind of took a backseat after a while. Um, my experience of working with some of the, or, or even linking up with some of the guys from Cardiff, Wales, Swan, uh, Swansea, uh, those places, uh, well, I remember meeting, I think the first couple of people that I met from Cardiff or, or Wales in general, 
was probably DJ Cuz and Slice. Um, so yeah, they came to my flat if I remember correctly. Now all of these happened a long time ago, so I don't remember everything clearly, because you know, getting old, senile, all that kind of stuff. But I met DJ Slice and DJ Cuz at my flat in New Cross when I was living in New Cross uh, all those years ago in the early 90s uh, or mid 90s and we became friends. Um, a little bit later we met up with the Headcase lads but I'm pretty sure that I didn't meet all the Headcase lads at my, at my flat. I'm pretty sure that we met them in places like Cardiff and Bristol. And just places like that when we were doing shows where we linked up with the guys and everybody kind of just hung out for a little bit. So, yeah, there was obviously Nobster Nuts and everybody else. Um, but, yeah, my main my main connection with Cardiff was with DJ Cuz, uh, who became a personal friend. Uh, I, I mean, I see everybody as a friend, but Cuz was closer to me than anybody else in, in Cardiff or in Wales, full stop, because uh, not only did he like come to my flat, he came to my house when I bought my house, he even, you know what, interesting story, uh, one day I was digging my garden because we couldn't use the garden, it was unusable, and it took me a year to dig the garden, one day uh, Cuz calls me up, <laughs> and, and he asks if everything's cool and all that, and I'm like, yeah bro, you should come and hang out for the weekend, he walks through the door and I put a shovel in his hand and go get digging, <laughs> so um, yeah, it was it was funny. So that weekend probably damaged his back forever. But there was a lot of digging going on in the garden. But thanks, cuz. Uh, the garden looks amazing because of you partly as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how my relationship is with cuz. Um, and when I did my uh, second last album, I believe it was. Um, was it the second last album or the last? I think it was the second last album, Storms Are Brewing. Um, Cuz did some cutting on the record as well. Uh, so, yeah, he got involved in some of the recordings. And if I remember correctly, we did a, a couple of shows in Cardiff or in the Wales area where Cuz was my DJ at those events as well. Uh, yeah, so Rounder was um, a label set up by uh, an MC, female MC called Little Miss. And, uh, yes, uh, uh, Sophie was uh, around the same scene at the time. Um, she she recorded in, in, in Grassroots Studios. I think the first time I met her was in uh, Grassroots, actually. Um, so, yes, yeah, she, she was, uh, you know, a, a part of the scene. She was out there doing her music, uh, uh, writing rhymes, uh, DJing, just just a, 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 another one out there on, on the grind, really. And, um, yeah, she, she decided to, to set up a little label. Um, and I think they put out a, a couple of releases, I think. Um, Johnny B, I think, was uh, put, out, put out an album. or uh, His Rhyme Hungry EP, I think, was on um, Rounder Records. So Johnny and, and, and Caltech, those guys, they were uh, another talented talented uh, pair. They were, they were on the scene do, doing their thing. Um, yeah, I think I had a track on the uh, collective album or EP. Um, that was released to Rounder, and they were putting on some. I think Sophie was putting on some nights as well. They uh, put on the odd uh, Rounder Records night. Um, that was around about. I think that was just before the higher learning, if I remember rightly. And, uh, around about around about the same time. <laughs> River. 
When you look at your contribution so far, what is it that strikes you the most? The, the two main things I, I took away from it really was the uh, uh, j- just the fun aspect of making songs um, in the studio and having a product at the end of the day that you can go and, uh, and play and just have a, have a giggle with. And um, the other one was uh, entertaining crowds and just doing something on stage um, with the turntables that they hadn't um, necessarily seen before or, or, or hadn't seen it in, in, in a nightclub before and just pushing the boundaries there and, and giving the people their, their money's worth and putting a smile on their face. Yeah, what's happening? This is Butcher Cuts. I'm your producer, your DJ for the day. And you're listening to Radio KUNT-FM. On today's selection, we've got the dubious one, the Messiah. We've got the fog to the scratch to the leg. We've got Sean to the three-legged donkey. Boswell, straight out of Roswell. And we got Death Masher Slice. Hey, what about me, man? What am I, job living? And of course, I would like to get the fantastic knobs tonight. This is a track called Straight From The Donkey's Mouth. Kicks like a mill. I got some introductions on some dubious functions. Balls, blow, bubble gun, knob, shoot a spud gun. Butcher up with Kaz's production. And rips, tracks, make wackers change careers. You stay in the rats, kissing A in our ass. We kicks like a mule, prepare for the deal. The end is now you're getting radio wonky on your golden light. So fuck off and die. Turn out the lead, stylish pumps in your head. When you listen to it on your Sony Bloody Walker. XJ213, Shongi, crowd jump and MC. Undeniably, one of the walkies. With sound from Messiah. Oh, pass me the mic, check me out. I'm the dubious Messiah. I'm fabulous. Rip a grip jack with the shark and Nazareth. Waking MCs from a state of cold Lazarus. It's scandalous. Attract the strongest like magnets. Dance with the devil. Had to think this process to a superior level. Profile versatile, agile, not fragile. Intricate styles to impact like missiles. My freestyle, blow MCs. Cyclone breeze, leave jaws on floors and your whores on knees. With the shark to my left, we kick rhymes with the F. Maintain our role till the death. Uh. Listen, you're taking a mic to Alpex. Slap the fuck out your head. I'm packed discotheque when I touch that Backspin Cause I'm Welsh with a knife Call me Big Dissect in the dialects Now strictly when I intersect With a cold connect Sections of heads left perplexed by concept Intro cut the people detect Try to extract this spine Not the fucking neck When I extra protect Take an eloquent set Heads on fire with the process of verbal deflect Snap back slacking sex When we step in the zone Put a burner on the world Is in black and chrome You can tell I'm vexed By the vocal tone And I kicks like a mule Cause the lyric is prone I scratch funky And shonky's that junky And four pat the verb Chop a motherfucking monkey in the neck your style don't amaze me It's simple like Elemental B for B Wait till he's cancelled Guess a load of B And the F slice Cause my shy Shonky Where's the boss well Man here today When the council on the mic But she got tons to say Best stop rough jams With a break of day Olay, olay, olay Well hi, I'm Tony Prince The royal ruler And uh, yeah, I'm going to tell you about The uh, event that changed music uh, it was a little cassette that I received. Uh, I was working for Radio Luxembourg. I'd been with them for about 15 years and I'd become program director. But I also recorded shows. And one of the shows that I personally did was the top 20 imports from America, all the great new 12 inch records coming out and the disco top 30. And uh, on my show, I'd started playing uh, mixes. And I said, if there's any DJs out there who would like to send me their mixes, do so. And then one day I get this cassette and I put it in the machine and play it. And do you know what? There was no voice on it, nothing at all. 
It was just music, all uh, fast-forwarded, reversed, fast-forwarded, couldn't hear a voice. Now, Radio Luxembourg was famous for putting talking DJs on the air. It was uh, probably the most influential radio station in the world in that respect. And of course, every DJ, especially those working down nightclubs, would like to be a DJ on the radio. So I got lots and lots of audition tapes on cassettes. But this one, I couldn't work it out. What was going on here? This guy wants a job on Radio Luxembourg. Um, anyway, it sat on my desk for about five or six weeks. And then one night, I'm leaving the office and I'm getting ready to go get my car and drive down the M4. And I see the cassette and I thought, I'll have another listen to this kid. So I put it on as I'm driving down the M4 going home. And again, there's no DJ voice. There's no identifying who he is, what his um, motive operandi is. Uh, but suddenly, as I'm on a journey, I suddenly got what he was doing. He was mixing the tracks together. Now, anybody can mix tracks together, but this guy had got the the keys right. You know, if you do them in the wrong key, it can be very jarring. He got the tempo right. You've got to listen for that drum beat and make sure you're doing it right. And this guy, he was called Alan Coulthard and he was a Welsh kid and he was mixing. And I knew, I knew I had to feature this stuff on the radio, which I did. That's when I started putting mixes into the, the disco program. I invited Alan down to uh, Hartford Street in London, where Radio Luxembourg's HQ was. And I said to him, Alan, I love what you've done here. Uh, I would love you to do me a mix every week. Can you do that? <laughs> he said, yes, of course I could. And he started doing that. And these amazing mixes came out of Wales. And I broadcast them to greater Europe, Britain and greater Europe, because Radio Luxembourg had a massive uh, antenna, a great signal uh, that everybody in Europe could hear, even uh, people in Russia. Uh, but it was targeting Great Britain. The, the signal would go up in the sky into the ionosphere and then bounce down and spread itself around in a circle all over greater Europe. So Radio Luxembourg was probably the most listened to radio station in history at that wow. time. There were millions of people listening. I actually did a tour of Czechoslovakia um, and it was like I was one of the Beatles. Um, they'd never had a DJ go there. So such was the influence of Radio Luxembourg. And so I embraced the talent of Alan Coulthard. And eventually I got the idea. I thought, you know what? These club DJs are all writing to me now, asking how do we get hold of these mixes? So that's when the idea came. I went to see a guy called Morris Oberstein. Morris was the chairman of the BPI managing director of Sony, which was then CBS. And he was a good friend. All record companies stayed friends with the Royal Ruler because I was very influential. They had to be nice to me. <laughs> so we went out for lunch, Morris and I, and I told him this idea. I said, you record companies, all you majors have got these promotion departments. You have radio promotion and you've got a bunch of people who do club promotion. So you're sending free records to the DJs. Not every DJ can get on your mailing list. 
because there are too many who want your mailing list. So I've got an idea. I want to be given permission to sell mixes to DJs. They'll receive it every month on a cassette, but they'll get a second cassette, which will contain your new releases in edited form. So we'll give them a three-minute sampler of all your best tracks that are targeting Clubland. He said, I've never heard anything like it. He said, my God, I wish I was younger, Tony. I'd throw in with you. I says, well, the first thing you've got to do, Morris, is get me a license to sell these things. So he set up a meeting with the the BPI committee. It's all the bosses from the major record labels in the UK. And I pitched them just like I'd pitched Morris. And then I went away and I waited to hear. And a couple of days later, Obi called me. He said, Tony, you've got your license. You're going to go through the PPL. Uh, they do background sound stuff. So you'll be having the very first license, which will be called a dubbing license. So I wish you good luck. And that was it. I was uh, <laughs> I started a show with uh, mixes on. And then eventually... Uh, I'd run out of steam with Radio Luxembourg. I'd been there 16 years and they'd got a new hierarchy in who were concentrating more on trying to be a satellite TV company than the good old Radio Luxembourg top 40 station. So I came to an arrangement with them where I said, <clears throat> I can't work with this uh, TV thing. I, I'm so in love with radio. I'm so in love with music. I get. I got to get out of here. So they did a deal with me and they paid me some good money because I'd been with them a long time. And that helped me to set up a company called DMC or the Disco Mix Club. And I did that with my wife, Christine, who'd been to the BPI committee with me. She's always been by my side. She's actually sitting by my side as we talk. She's doing Christmas cards, aren't you? I am. You are. <laughs> anyway, uh, Christine and I uh, started planning for the Disco Mix Club. And uh, what it was, was uh, Christmas coming up. My family, my son, Daniel and Gabrielle, my mother-in-law, my mother, Christine and I, we were all slaving over sending cassette samples of what we're selling to the DJ world. How do you get a mailing list of, of every club in the country? I'll tell you what I did. I went down to the library in Slough and there's a section there which gives you all the nightclubs, like yellow pages. So I looked, I looked up, I photostatted all the pages. And then I went home and we started mailing out sample cassettes. And, and it's got my voice on it saying, hi, I'm Tony Prince, guess what I've got for you? And then I'd play a couple of Alan's mega mixes. And that was it. That's how DMC launched. That was Christmas. Come uh, come January, we started getting money. People wanted it. Club DJs loved it. You know, I mean, mixing was not a thing in clubs in those days in in yeah. UK. It was happening in America, but it wasn't happening in a big way in the United Kingdom. Now it was going to start. So, come February the first, the very first DMC uh, cassette went out to these DJs. And the first mega mix was Shalimar, which was brilliant. Another great Alan Coulthard classic. And uh, I made another decision. Not only was, was I going to give the DJs music, I was going to give them news. And we launched 
um, a 16 page black and white magazine, which I called Mix Mag. And I became the editor of that. And that was a very powerful tool for us to have. All the record companies started advertising in it. And it grew over the years into the biggest dance music magazine the world has ever known. Mix Mag is still going more online than anything now, not owned by me. It was bought off, off uh, Christine and I by EMAP Metro, big publishing house. Paid a lot of silly money for it. Anyway, um, I, they, they lasted a few years. They took my team. The team didn't like working in that corporate environment. And eventually they had a management buyout of MixMag. And it's still going there. You know, I don't think it's as prolifically influential as it was back in the heyday. But it's been contributed to the DJ world extensively. I'm quite proud about that. We changed the DJ from a chatty, let's talk after every record DJ, to a musician. I've always said that most DJs, they may not play a guitar, they may not play a piano, but what they do play are records. And now they're mixing them and eventually remixing them. They're actually producers. They're definitely musicians. You've got to have music in your soul if you're going to mix records together creatively. And that's what we created. That's what Disco Mix Club was and is.